This episode is brought to you by Indie Insights. Indie Insights is our bi-weekly newsletter and love note to the film industry, movies, and the creatives that make them, not to mention you, our esteemed listeners. Inside, you'll find curated industry trends, articles, exclusive commentary, and underappreciated films from filmmakers like you worldwide. And the best part is that it is completely free. So join today at www.bonsai.film. It takes just a few seconds. And once you sign up, you'll get the very next newsletter on Friday morning. It's that simple. Go to www.bonsai.film to get Indie Insights, our biweekly newsletter, and join a network of film creatives just like yourself. And don't worry, we'll never sell your information or spam you with a bunch of nonsense emails, just the bi-weekly film industry goodness you need. And if you ever tire of Indie Insights, simply unsubscribe. No gimmicks, no games. So go to www.bonsai.film to get Indie Insights for free. listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps creatives in film get where they're going faster by sharing the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives across the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. Hey, everybody. I am Frederick. I am a filmmaker and a content creator. You may know me from such things as the award-winning documentary Counter History's Rock Hill, which you can view on the Amazon platform, and also as the Emmy award-winning filmmaker for the PBS series If Cities Could Dance, hiding an urban dance scene in Atlanta called J-Setting. Frederick? Welcome to the Make It Podcast. My pleasure. The pleasure is all mine. This is a long, long time coming. Uh, We met each other at a lovely party at Five Stone Studios a year ago. Yes, it was an interesting party. Um, You were uh, one of the other uh, people (laughs) of um, distinction in the room. Um, I naturally gravitated towards you and i was like i I do want to meet him and talk to him i just don't want it awkward um but yes you were seen you were noticed um and you were dressed well thank you gosh this guy might be going places i should probably introduce myself and then we were uh introduced by uh someone as as well a very talented music artist by the name of justina kelly yeah, uh, she is talented. Shout yeah. out to Justina Kelly and her sister Sarah Jean. Sarah, yeah, Sarah's on the road. Justina is got a deal in France. She's in Europe a lot, so they're getting it done. But their mom was also a music artist in her own right. Like she's actually worked with other people that I know uh, as as well. So they are a generational family in the entertainment business. And Justina actually lived in Hollywood. 
uh, as well, right around the same time that I did. Too. Yeah. We lived in the same neighborhood, didn't even know each other. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, and, so, yeah. mom is super talented and yes. uh, well well known songwriter. Yes. Uh, so it, it is interesting. Every everybody wants to start a business and sort of pass it down. It's really hard to pass down your musical talent or your filmmaking talent, but they wow. yeah. they figured it out. Acting um, talent. <laughs> acting talent. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I do want to give this audience a deeper sense of who you are. So yeah. I'm going to read from a short bio. And you can feel free to hop in at the end and say all of that is incorrect, or some of it is. Frederick Taylor, founder of Tomorrow Pictures, is a creative entrepreneur, filmmaker, and culture consultant with a passion for documenting amazing stories and sharing them through digital media. His work and travels have taken him around the world, telling stories about people, the challenges they face, and the inspiring solutions they offer. The adventure into content creation started with a film education at Temple University's highly regarded documentary filmmaking program, followed by a graduate degree in communications from Georgia State. While teaching at the Atlanta College of Art and Clark Atlanta University, Frederick took the leap into hip-hop music, videos, I don't know why I pause right there, hip-hop music videos, and TV content for legends like Russell Simmons, Outkast, and directed a one-hit wonder called Da Dip that, did I pronounce that right? Da Dip? Da Dip. Yeah, I'm going to have to check that out. That had 15 minutes of fame on MTV and was nominated for awards for its visuals and creative style. His civil rights documentary, Counter Histories, Rock Hill, screened at Cannes Film Market, and has aired nationally on PBS and was featured on Magic Johnson's television network, Aspire, as a part of the American Black Film Festival series. It continues to win Best Documentary and Audience Awards in film festivals around the world. Other documentary work includes After the Fall, HIV Grows Up, directed and shot on location in Romania, and featuring young people who survived the pediatric AIDS epidemic. Other films include Boxing Chicks, Women Boxers, the story of a transgender tween coming of age in Los Angeles. As an artist, Frederick builds experiences and installations with his photography, excuse me, video and sound design. Frederick serves on the board for the Buckhead Club, is a guest lecturer at the University of Southern California, and is regularly invited to speak on panels at festivals at conferences and universities. So I would, that's, you're super accomplished, obviously. I would love to start in a interesting place, maybe not a typical place, because we do have more material than we will actually be able to cover in this conversation, which is such a blessing when we get to interview someone who's done so much for so long. I'd love to start in Kenya, can you can you tell us the story of when a village elder whispered in your ear in Kenya? You're good. You you do your um you do your homework. Um, I was working on a job. I was in Kenya. I was in Nairobi. More specific, I was in an informal settlement called Makuru, Makuru mm. Kujenga, which is about ten miles outside of Nairobi. 
Um, an informal settlement is basically a slum village. It's a nicer word for slum village. Now you're talking about an area of about, you know, two and a half cubic square miles with a hundred thousand people dumped in. So that is tight. Yeah. And these people are living in shanty huts and they're living in the margins. There's no water, there's no electricity, there's no plumbing. And when you hit this village, you know it, you know it. Um, it's a remarkable place in that um, Kenya has was a British colony for 400 years, but the British were there for 400 years and nobody put in a toilet. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you feel the rippling effect of the vestiges of uh, colonialism. You you become upset. There's mm-hmm. no question about it. You feel something. Um, literally driving in from the airport in Nairobi to my hotel, which was on a plantation, by the way, very lovely, but on a plantation. Um, I wept. Mm. I had never been to Africa before. I am of African descent. I have only heard, never known, never really experienced. And something came over me. And it was something that was very transformative that continued the entire time I was there. So spent a, a good bit of time there and started to discover all kinds of things. Um, I was hanging out with one of the elders in the village. His name was Mark Deck. And he kept giving me a hard time initially because I'm the American guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right. he's just, I'm soft. You know, I don't got much of a spine. I don't know what's up. And I'll never forget this. He's sitting there. Um, we're on a break. And it was it was in one of the uh, buildings there where the kids come to do their art and hang out and stuff like like a clubhouse almost. And he's in there. He's eating collard green grits for lunch. Right. And he's looking at me and he's going, (laughs) you Americans don't know nothing about this. I was like, come on, man. Really? That's all you got. That's it. You've been giving me a hard time this whole time. And you come to me with collard greens and grits. Let me tell you something, man. Okay. <laughs> but collard greens and grits. So I'm glad to know that it's from here, from mm-hmm. Africa. Because yeah. I always wonder what the tradition comes from. Why we in America? I don't think I knew that. I don't think I knew that until just this moment. It was fascinating. And so the the relationship started to really change and evolve because he opened up and he's like, wow, you know, this is one of my brothers from a lost tribe. I'm there trying to reconnect. And then I'm hanging out with a group of people uh, and we're talking about the bank had bounced. And how the bank bounce is a true story. Um, how it's very similar to some of the dances that they do in the villages as well. And that we're just the cheap ripoff version of African dance. Mm. And guess what? They're right. Yeah. We are. we rip off you know, African dancing because we're African too. Right. And so Mark Deck comes over to me and he whispers in my ear. He says, you are more African than you are American And you should always remember that. And it was a incredibly empowering moment in my life because all of the awkwardness at times I had felt living in America, being around white people or black people or anybody, when I would do something or be a certain way that people were uncomfortable with, usually when I was asserting myself and usually within the realm of intellect, people didn't know how to handle it. And people didn't know how to really nurture it 
or uh, support it or see it or participate and be a part of it. It made me feel like an outsider. I felt very awkward at times as a black person or not good enough. Yeah. You know, and that whole construct changed and shifted because I realized now I had a space to put it in. It's like, I'm just being more African than I am American. And these Americans don't understand that. Right. And that my identity is very much rooted in Africa. I'm still American, but there is a part of my identity that is African, even though I had not been born and raised in Africa, I'm still African. And that is something that I've just really brought back with me that I have this conversation with people over and over and over again, that to sit here and say that I'm American, I'm American, I'm American, I'm American, that's nice, but you're more than that. It's just like when you meet someone that's Italian American, they're like, yeah, I'm Italian American, but you know, I have my Italian heritage, blah, 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 Irish American, Jewish American. Everybody else is like, why can't we? Why can't we? Why can't I embrace the part of me that is African and still be American? You know, and that helps me to ground me as far as what I do, what I think, what I feel, and how I connect to the rest of the world and how I identify. Thank you for that. It's a beautiful point. It plays out in a lot of different ways. You have a quote that says, uh, every morning I wake up and look in the mirror and all I see is a lost African. And <laughs> man, on one hand, it, 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 it's, there's humor in it, but, but there's an undercut of, um, there's an under, there's like a crestfallen undercut to it. And, and, and it started to make me a little sad. And I, I was like, I was really kind of shook up by it doing the research for this, this interview, because it's such a powerful thing to visualize and say, and the stuff you were talking about, like I, like I mentioned earlier, it plays out in these interesting ways. So I have a neighbor, I love my neighbor at my house. And on Saturdays during the summer, he'll wash his truck in the driveway and he'll like have his music cranking and it'll be some version of rock or country. And I'm pretty pleased with it. But if I were to go to the driveway and play hip hop really loud while I wash my car, I don't think it would be taken very well. And that is just a condition. That is just something that I I'm used to. Like mm -hmm. I would play, something else. You, you know what I mean? Just to keep the peace. We are in a neighborhood. We're trying to have a society as Seinfeld would say, we're mm -hmm. trying to have a society. Let's, let's just alter our behavior a little bit to make things, you know, okay. Um, every day, even though I am biracial every day, I walk out in the world and you might have this experience depending on where you live at the time you are, you mentioned it earlier. I was the only black guy, other black guy in the room at a party. Mm -hmm. So let's just gravitate, right? Like we're like going to be pulled together because of that very naturally. And it's not necessarily about race, but I'll, I'll explain that in a second, but here's the deal. That's every day for guys like me and you. Yes. Every day we are the black person in the room yep. and I have white friends that mention times that they are the only white person in the room and mm -hmm. it sends them running to the door. Oh yeah. So why are they insecure? Why aren't they comfortable? And then why can't they fully understand and empathize with the idea that 
maybe, maybe I'm a bit uncomfortable here. Maybe I'm a bit out of my element and I'm so used to it. I don't realize it anymore. And so, you know, it's so much easier to make a mistake as the other in the room. And, and I think, um, I think I wanted to just hear your thoughts on sort of why is the plight of the other so scary? I, I, I do feel like we look at the other and say, that's scary. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't want any part of it versus embracing why they're, the, they are the other and, and learning something about them. I, I'll give you an, an example. that's outside of the black and white paradigm. Yeah. Andrew Yang is an awesome candidate, but will never make be elected president because his last name is Yang. Why are we scared of Yang? Be- Why are we scared that, of the other? Because that would mean that we would, it's just what you just said. We would have to have a seismic shift. We've never had a Jewish president. Um, oh, really? No. Um, you know, Kennedy was the first Irish Catholic mm. president. Um, when we were born, we were young boys, kids. A black president did not seem like it was on the to-do list. <laughs> yeah. You know, I distinctly remember that as a young kid. We're like, well, he can't be president. Yeah. That was like a joke. Yeah. That was a thing. You know, that was a bit that Richard Pryor would do where he would come out and pretend to be the president of the United States and make it funny because it would never people were just like, that would never happen. You know, you know, we've gotten close to a female president, but, you know, some stuff went down, you know, we might get there. You know, it, it's also someone that could be from the LGBTQ community as, mm-hmm. as, as well. For us to be able to deal with and face the other means that we have to change our paradigm and to jump outside of our race and jump into another one where I really saw it. Like I've spent time in other places around the world and I'm going to be, since we're shooting from the hip here, most racist place I've ever been is India. Oh, really? Oh yeah. I mean, I'd never been on a whole, a a whole country continent, wherever everybody Brown, everybody different shades of Brown. You know what I mean? Everybody got a problem with everybody. I was like, is, is it religion or is it race there? I think it's race. I think it's just pure and simple race. The lighter people are better than the darker people. And I don't know whether that's a manifestation of, you know, 400 years of colonial rule, the British. I don't right. know. Or was it inherent in their culture? I don't have any idea, but it's a joke. Yeah. It's 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 silly. It's embarrassing for them. I mean, I was literally in India, light-skinned Indians would get out of the elevator if I was in it. <laughs> I was like, these people are crazy. These people are crazy. Uh, because, it's funny, like, but not funny. It's, it's funny, but not funny. But if the cops come and we're in America, they're going to tell them Indians to get on the ground, too. Mm-hmm. Like, they, there is no, spe- they, they don't get it. There's no special treatment. You don't yeah. get any more. I have never met a single Indian person in my life that is more advanced than me socially and economically and intellectually because they're Indian and I'm not. Right. It's not true. Right. They're in the same bucket. Yeah. But somehow they some have gotten this idea that they're not. And of course, not all Indians are that way. And I have really great friends that are Indians and it's perfectly fine. And we talk about these issues all the time. But that was the first place I had ever been where I was like, wow. 
Wow, Do you think it's anthropological weird. at all where we we want to tribe up and we want to be in our little village and that's sure. where we find safety? Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. I, I've been in rooms with Asians and the Chinese and the Japanese and the Koreans refer to themselves as fancy Asians. You know what they call the Thai, the Laotians, the Vietnamese, the Filipinos? You know what they call them? What do they call them? Jungle Asians. Mm-hmm. Okay. I was like, whoa, y'all yeah. crazy. Yeah. Y'all crazy. That reminds they me go, of growing up. They go at it. They go at it. And it's always the other. It, it's Catholics and Protestants in Ireland as well. Yes, yes. It's I, Germans and French people still go at it. I have German friends who still make these nasty remarks about the French. Yeah. Yeah. And they're perfectly comfortable doing it. I got friends from Paraguay who hate Mexicans. That's crazy. I got Cuban friends who I had Cuban friends who used to try to, they would call me the white black guy. (laughs) I've been called that a few times. You're Cuban. The only reason you're still standing on your feet in front of me is because you're Cuban. Yeah. That's it. That's it. Right. You know what I mean? Because again, well, Jama- Jamaicans and Haitians, J- Jamaicans and Haitians, Dominicans, it just goes on and on and on. I'm sure that, you know, the people at the North Pole hate the people at the South Pole. I don't know. That's just how yeah. we roll. That is a part of our species it's it's incredibly unsophisticated it's incredibly antiquated and it is completely unnecessary moving forward as a force of humanity we all need to survive we all need to come together when we were walking out of caves if everybody had been like oh well i don't like person down the street i don't like person in the cave around the corner i'm not i'm not doing this like hunting and gathering village thing i'm not building (laughs) huts with these people i'm going back to my cave yeah it's one of the most brilliant scenes in Django Unchained that I, I relate to. Yeah. Uh, there's a scene where Jamie Foxx and Django rides up on his horse mm-hmm. and the black people are looking at him like in awe. Some of them are in the field. And then the house Negroes are pissed that he's on that horse. He's got a horse. <laughs> and it reminds me, it reminds me of growing up in the South, in the deep South as a black guy, every Every word or name that I learned would make somebody laugh. Like when you're joking on somebody, cracking, burning on somebody, mm-hmm. they were all like racist, like self-hate terms oh, where, yeah. where, where if you could make somebody feel like a field Negro and you were the Negro on the horse, then you would win that little battle. Right win there, the argument. Battle. But, but it win. wasn't, but it was all really personal attacks up, up to a certain point. Um, and, and, and words that you were definitely taught generationally from white True. people that were being racist. Oh yeah. And then which we is crazy to each other. And then the white man's in the background goes, yes, yes, my plan is yeah. working. <laughs> yeah. They are yeah. destroying themselves. Mr. Burns. <laughs> Mr. Burns. Yes, Mr. Burns. Mr. Burns. It's, it's Mr. Burns that's controlling all of this. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's it's so it's it's, it, it's so unusual it's you know, how we how we do that to ourselves. We just tear each other down, tear each other down, tear each other down. It's not unless you can dunk a basketball score, a touchdown, or you can get on a stripper pole. Then all of a sudden you're okay. 
Yeah, well, you're on a horse now. So well, even you're if you're on a pole. horse, and yeah. the horse is the metaphor. Yeah, without a doubt. And we could run down a list of things as brown people of what is the horse that yeah. you got to get on to be acceptable. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that's not on is not a horse is intellect. <laughs> I, you know, it's funny that it's so funny that you bring that up. And I, I was before I move on, I will move on off this. But that is so true um, in this in this complex and, and sad way. When I grew up and where I grew up, the people I grew up around, they respected me for how many women I could bed how good I was at sports, how good I could fight. Mm -hmm. And then when I got around Nick, my business partner, Nick, and co-founder of Bonsai Creative at Vanderbilt University and all his friends, which were for the most part black, all of a sudden, none of those things mattered. They had no respect for me. Matter of fact, I was a knucklehead. I was like, uh, I was considered a liability to them. Mm. And I quickly learned that what they respected was how quick was my wit, how good was my problem solving skills and did I have any talent? So one of the ways that I showed I had talent was I I'd been playing piano and had been in singing groups. So I, I had talents, so I had potential so I could hang. And then I tell you what, I learned more in one year hanging with those guys at Vanderbilt than I learned in five, six years of, of school before that. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I'm going to, take it one step further too, and argue that since, you know, we're free to speak our minds in this podcast, we are as men of color and distinction, there is very little we learn from white men Yeah, in the system mm -hmm. that we can take with us for the rest of our lives. I can have coffee with an old black man, <laughs> and, you know, and walk away with time. That he has said to me that has changed my life. Yeah. It's changed yeah. my perspective, you know, helped me to direct my compass. Mm -hmm. I rarely have any type of emotional, psychological, intellectual interaction with a Christian cisgendered white male that resonates within me. It is like talking to a wall with a hole in it. You get nothing. <laughs> You get nothing, you know, and I resent it because I watch them when they interact with each other and they give. They're not giving to the black man. They have no interest. They don't even think they're obligated to. They don't even care. You know what they want to do? Hey, bro, you play football. Where do you go? Like, that's how they come. That's how they <laughs> stuck to you all the time. They're not interested in anything. I said, yeah. you know, got any weed? You know what girls are? You know, like, that's it. There is, a, there is a degree of in, in certain circles. Now, this isn't universal in my world. In my world, there there are some there are. really cool. And, and uh, you know, my business mentor was a was a it's a gay there, white there, man. There are many. There are there are there are many that are. Yeah. That, and, and I do love them and I do think that they're great. But, but I got to work a little harder sometimes to get to them. Yes. You know, I'd yeah. like to meet some of the ones that, you know, that makes it easier for me. I will, I will you know, do that. And I do that. But, but there's a part of you that's, that, that, that is so honest and true and raw right there because when, they, when people don't know who I am, 
and I'm in a place there that there aren't a lot of people of distinction, as you put it, mm-hmm. I do get there. There are people basically trying to put the math together on how I got there. Always. Oh, he plays sports. Oh, got it. Got it. That makes sense. So that's why he's there at this university because they have to because they've got to put it back in. The they're box. trying to figure they out how they ended up in the same room with sure. her. Absolutely. You know how weird that is? I mean, I wonder how I ended up in That's unusual, room. right? Yes, of course. Like, That's how like bad how it is. is. That's how bad we're programmed. I saw you yeah. in a room and I'm like, what's he doing here? Why yeah. is he here? This yeah, is a white only party. <laughs> how did he get in? What's his deal? That's how sad it is. That's how sad it is. They told me they only gave me the secret black hey, code. I to thought get I in. was the black guy in this party. <laughs> Yeah, imme- immediately all of uh, both of our superpowers were diminished diminished completely yeah. instead of rising yeah. up we all yeah. we, we fall yeah. we fall I, apart and it's i like just- going into the room as highlander there can only be one uh, <laughs> that's a deep cut uh so uh okay you believe that the film industry is a speeding train and we all need to know when to jump off i like the visual of it what do you mean by that it's like the defiant ones with uh, Sidney Poitier and, and Tony Curtis to go back in time and they're handcuffed together and yeah. it's a speeding train and they're trying to get away and they got to jump off the train um, and they're handcuffed together. So they're forced to jump off together. And mm-hmm. then later on, it's the speeding train. They've broken the chains of the handcuffs, but Portier can run faster than Curtis. <laughs> Portier jumps on the train and Portier's got a shot at like, I can leave this dude behind. Yeah. And because they bonded and they've become friends now, he elects to jump off the train as well. And they decide to deal with the situation, whatever is going to come to them together. As they hear the dogs coming to, to run them down because they're escaped prisoners. Yeah. That is what it is like to be in the entertainment business now. This fantasy of a train's going to come, you're going to get on it, you're going to have a nice little cable car, and they're going to give you a drink, you know, in the bar car is not real, especially if you are of color. It doesn't happen. You're there to get on this train, be on there as long as you need, and then you got to jump off because that train's not going where you needed to go. You got to find another train or that train's going to derail. And that's the thing that people don't think enough about with black artists. And and that's one of the things that has been huge in our lifetime that was not there in our parents and our grandparents and our great grandparents. These people, the color come and go, man, like the wind, man, they become significant and insignificant in seconds. Yeah. I would have never thought by the year 2022 that Outcast is not still killing it. Yeah. I'm blown away by that. Little Kim's gone. I'm not a fan of Little Kim. All these people are gone. I mean, even like Nicki Minaj is like a a punchline. She's she's teetering on the edge of insignificance. Exactly. How is it that they disposed of these black artists so quickly? It might be that these artists are doing disposable art. Some exactly. of them. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's but a, there's Outcast a does not fit into that, though. 
Yeah, and and with Outcast, I don't know what. And there there are other artists that don't fit into that realm that, that sure. are doing exactly. incredible art, continue to do incredible art, but they don't they they can't find a market. They can't break through. They can't find a market. Anymore. India RE yeah. is probably the greatest example. Oh, God, like you, you're just like this doesn't yeah. make any sense. Yeah. But then it's like, oh wait, she's dark skinned and she looks like an African. Right. She does. Yeah. She's not, you know, acceptable enough. Yeah. For them. Yeah. You know, so it's troubling. Yeah. And that's why, like, you know, as great as I think Lizzo is, I'm concerned moving forward because they keep giving her all these awards. And now it's like, okay, you're going to dissipate and shrink as well. You're not going to be as interesting anymore. They're going to find somebody else. My concern with Lizzo is that they, is that half the, People are, and rightfully so, focused on her musicianship and songwriting skills. And the other vocal half, which is disconcerting, is solely focused on her confidence as a large woman. Right. And they're saying, they're, they're intimating, you need to stop being fat and confident. Because it sends a bad message that fat is okay. And I look at that and say, maybe, but what's the alternative? That she's like on suicide watch because she feels so bad about herself? Like, I don't know. If we can just focus on her artwork, then. They can't. They can't. They make the other white girls who are fat. She'll be around. I don't know. Yeah, no, it's it's going to be an interest. It's going to be interesting how that all plays out. You know, Missy Elliott was a plus size uh, woman for a long time. And now she's not, yeah. you know, and, and some of that's for health reasons, obviously. And for Lizzo, the health thing might come into play, uh, as, as, as well, you know, Latifah has been able to not sexualize. Latifah's the one. Yeah. She's, she's kept her relevance she, she, throughout, but she's whore. She's Jersey, man. Like she yeah. just has, a, she cut, she came out of a different era. I mean, when Latifah was dropping her albums back in the day, that was significant. Yeah, you know, of a someone who was doing woke rap and a woman, and unafraid. You know, um, there weren't a lot of female rappers there that were breaking through on yeah, the top, like and then we went Light. into that uh, yeah, that like hookerish apologetic era of female yeah. rappers, and that's yeah. kind of stuck and everything else, which is a shame. Yeah, I still shame. I still say like Sampa the Great. And Rhapsody, yeah, those are great artists and alternatives to Cardi B and Nicki Minaj and Megan Thee Stallion. There's so much black art that falls through the cracks that nobody knows anything about, and white people only like the stuff that is black that is totally marketed to them. They don't like to dig. They don't like to dig. They don't like to go look for it. They'll go look hard for some crappy rock group, but they won't look hard for a black artist. They won't even go deep cut. With old soul music, you know, yeah, which yeah. is crazy. Because I'll say, like, oh, have you ever listened to any of you know Aretha Franklin's gospel stuff? And like, no, I just love respect, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, they don't do it, but then they know every Beatles tune, everything ever recorded. Like Paul McCartney farted in nineteen seven, Dylan, whatever. They go hard, they go deep. Yeah, you know. Yeah. 
So, and it, it was like I was working dream. on this project. I interviewed for a project to be a, a producer on a BBC project about um, Little Richard. Yeah. And I didn't get the job. You know why I didn't get the job? Because I'm black and I know what I'm doing. That's why I didn't get the job. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope they see this. I literally hope they see this. And they know yeah. who they are and they know what they are as well. Because I came in, I was completely and totally overqualified. And I came in and I did the interview as a way of saying, hey, I can be a shepherd that can get you deeper into the universe of Little Richard with the music and the connections and all this other stuff. Yeah, he was they were phenomenal. Like, that's okay. We're going to go get somebody that's going to carry our water to do this project. Yeah. Okay, fine. But like, if I see you in a street alley, we gonna fight, you know? So (laughs) that's how, and they're BBC. Yeah. They're BBC. And so that broke my fantasy about like, oh, Europeans are more sophisticated and they don't see color as much. That's horse bleep as well. Yeah. In fact, I think in certain instances, they see it more and they have even a greater sensibility about the racial caste system sensibility is the perfect yeah. word and, and exactly yeah. and they, they feel like are, they're being sensible right and they're they're colonials and they want to appropriate everything and stuff like that because i said things to them like well you know little richard you know is really in richard perryman and richard perryman the, the surname of perryman is british and he is of british descent and there were a lot of british people that colonized the southeast and I think that would be an interesting one you know, because they were like, we don't understand why British people love him so much. And I'm like, because he's part British. Why can't you accept that? They never want to talk about the genetic link. They never want to talk about the genetic link. It's like if you started parading yourself through Europe looking for your ancestry. Yeah, which I may do one day. And you should. With my dad. I think that that's really important because I'll go with you and we'll probably find out we're cousins. So (laughs) that's how messed up it is. That's how messed up it is. Which would be a great movie, by the way. Two black guys go to Europe to figure out that they're related. But but that's interesting. I'm going to write that down. Exactly. And we need to do more films that are interesting and innovative that are pushing this discourse to circle back around what you said earlier about like DNA is rewriting our narratives mm-hmm. because our narratives are being rewritten due to DNA. It is rewriting the discourse of art. Exactly. Music, culture, television, film, dance, all this other stuff. That's, it's not about, it's more than just black futurism. It's future futurism yeah. as a yeah. whole. Yeah. Now, black futurism is a big part of that. Black futurism is the springboard, the gateway that's blowing all of this open. Once again, the same way blackness blew open the door with music a hundred years ago, the same way blackness blew open the door with rock and roll and what's cool 50 years ago, blew open the door with hip hop. We keep blowing the doors off things all the time. You know, yeah. Obama blew the doors off of politics. Jackie Robinson blew the doors off of, of sports. We create and make this society sustainable. And to circle back around again, this is what they're afraid of. They don't want to deal with this intrinsic truth that because they murdered all of the natives and then they made us, you know, clean up their mess for hundreds of years. We are the true Americans. We are the arbiters of their culture. We own it. We're renting it 
to them. They're not that special. They're kind of lazy and they're kind of cowards. Yeah. Who goes in and murders millions of people who are native to a land and then says everything that they do and think doesn't matter. They made like Indian medicine illegal to the night until the 1950s. It was legal to kill native Americans until the civil war. They name all this stuff after them all the time, rivers, buildings, streets, all this other stuff. Yeah, it's states. It's crazy. It's like I come over to your house, whip your ass, kick you out, and I call it the Barclay Center. And I, <laughs> I live there now. You know, like yeah. that's how that's this is this stuff's crazy. And then they expect us not to talk about it. And they expect us to not want to teach it to our kids and teach it to their kids so we can change this so we don't repeat this again. There is this they idea of this again. There is this idea that it's being repeated now in the new plantation is social media because the algorithmic scientists have figured out that it's better for social media networks to over index black content. Oh, yeah. Totally. Well, because so we're, we're the first over indexed, but sure, we don't get the benefit of the over indexing. So we're building these social media networks. They're pipe. They're using this as the guinea pigs. We are the, the, the people that are the first adopters to everything, whether you're talking about transistor radios, boom boxes, Walkmans, dancing clothes, zoot suits, break dancing. We create it, we invent it, jazz, blues, rock and roll. If you create something that is black and it succeeds in the black community, it has an 80% chance of succeeding in the white community. It bleeds over every single time. Yeah. If we came up with this idea well, of we're incredible like, culture builders. We are phenomenal cultural <laughs> builders. The greatest cultural builders in this past two three four hundred years easily we constantly keep setting the pace setting the tone we create the debate all the time you know yes, yes. Um, and it, it's fascinating but we just don't people just don't want us to have credit for it that's why colin kaepernick can't have a job it's stupid it's yeah. stupid why he doesn't have a job why doesn't he have a job? Because they don't want to admit that blacks are powerful and that blacks can be right. You know, they gave Deshaun Watson another job, another swing at it. He's making, I mean, he's, he's going to make, he's going to make it's a the, bunch of people, the, a bunch of money. The crimes aren't even close. If we're going to criminalize Colin well, Kaepernick. Colin Kaepernick didn't commit a crime and neither he did. You but know, he's biracial too. Yeah. And he got the black person beat down special yeah i have never seen a, a a biracial person dragged like him it's business it's crazy it's business as usual i i looked at it like this here is a guy who although he went to a super bowl was not considered a top 15 or top 10 quarterback you combine that with this love affair that the NFL has with the military um, and the constant conflation of what military and football yeah. teams. And then you have a guy who's kneeling. So how do you deal with that? I mean, the amount of pressure 
that the NFL must have felt from the U.S. military and the and the taxpayer dollars that get funneled to the NFL through the military uh, through that marketing campaign, and you've got a player kneeling, like you know the first Colin Kaepernick was uh, Chris Jackson. Oh yeah, well, that, played for yeah. the Denver I, I, Nuggets, I, I, Mahmoud like, Abdul yeah. Raouf. Oof. Yeah, and, and and his career was torpedoed as well. But the reason no one cared as much is because the NBA. It doesn't have a partnership with the U.S. military. Right. So there was no, they were able to hide him. They didn't have to kick him out of the league. Just like, let's just like not highlight him. And, you know, the NBA is the other league anyway. Like we, you know, it's like a player's league. And and that's also factors in. The NFL is an owner's league. And, uh, you know, one of our, our great uh, mentors Dick Gregory always thought the NFL was just like slavery. Although I admit to playing football my entire life and enjoy watching it, but there are some uncanny similarities that get a little get a little weird. Um, and and that's and that's Colin Kaepernick ended up being sort of uh, dragged in that. And Nike came and and said, "Hey, uh, come over here." And and I even questioned that to a degree. Uh, but it's, it, I don't think he's ever going to need for food. Um, I just wonder if there'll be an NFL franchise before he's too old to play that will have the courage every year. Tom Brady plays another year, the window for a quarterback to play grows basically, because when I was a kid, you, you were pretty much on your way out at 33 to 35 and now he's playing at 45. So now Kaepernick, what has, 12 years left that he can come back maybe in and hasn't taken a hit. So I'm, I'm curious what owner in the NFL will be courageous enough. If he really wants to play, if he really wants to try out, we'll give him that opportunity. I'm curious to see it. Um, and we're asking a bunch of white guys. There's no black owners. If there was yeah, a there's, black owner, uh, there's, there's like a yeah, Indian in dude in Jacksonville, but I think that's it. He's, yeah. well, he's uh Persian. Persian, yeah, Persian. Excuse right. me. Uh, Which Shad, I, would like, Shad Khan. I would like to. I would like Shad a Khan. word with him. I would like to speak to him. I mean, yeah. come on, man, you Persian, you gotta like help us out here. And he's got well, a lot of money. Yeah, and they I have their turn. own deal. You know, in the Middle East, there's Persians and there's Arabs, and if you're an Arab, I know. you're, the, you're the lesser. Exactly, and uh, you, I know, man, and you know. It's weird. I mean, he would be, they'd be back on the map tomorrow if they brought Kaepernick in to be the backup quarterback at, at Jacksonville. And I can't yeah. believe they're afraid to do it. I can't believe they're afraid to do it. It'd be a massive circus. It's like the same reason Tim Tebow couldn't get a backup job. It's but like, he sucked. He did. He did. It's unfair to compare him to Kaepernick. He, he has, and I he would say, like- top 1% leadership skills and motivational skills. Um, but he's a circus and, and teams hate when the backup quarterback gets more publicity than the starter. So it's, it is, it's a, it's, there, it's, it's complex. Um, sure. Please allow me to quote you again. Uh, you, you said, you've said my struggles happen when people do not have faith in what I can bring to the table. This alludes to the BBC thing as well. My struggles start when I speak my mind, my struggles start when I take a position of power. How do you, counter that because I think as a filmmaker being told no is the, is the default. 
And being on the other side of film financing myself, I've often mentioned the thing that's the easily the hardest for me mm-hmm. is that I have to say no 99 times out of 100. And it makes you sad. It makes you frustrated to have to say no that many times to people. Sure. So I'm just curious your take on how you counter these, these struggles. No is a part of the business. No is a part of life. There is tremendous learning lessons from no. I can handle no. I'm just interested sometimes in the why. Yeah. And I'm really interested in the, well, what do you really want to do? Why did you ask me in here in the first place? You know, yeah. a lot of it at times is just going through the motions. And it's their ability to overlook the skill set as well. Mm. You know, like the yes is like you can serve in a technical capacity supporting somebody else. But the no is like you're going to be in a leadership position. The no is you're, you're going to be out front. You know, um, I know people in Hollywood and post George Floyd out there, a lot of the old guard, the old white dudes, they're like, you can't even get a meeting in this town anymore, you know, to do a black project unless you have a black person in the room with you now. I was like, that was significant to me when I heard that, because Mm. I was like, okay, so for decades, when you were talking about trying to, you know, get financing for a Sidney Poitier movie, there's nobody black in the room. Yeah. Okay. That's what we're talking about here. Yeah. And that, you know, until George Floyd, you didn't have to. Now you have to. So now (laughs) they're like, okay, we got to pick the right one. We got to go to the house and get one of them because we can't go to the field and get one of those other ones. We got to get one that's got a horse. Right. (laughs) So that's the crazy part about it. And that's what I have a problem with is with the the no, it's a different kind of no. You know, it's the same kind of no you get when you get pulled over by the cops. It's the same kind of no you get back in the day when you want to play quarterback. Yeah. You know, or you want to be a doctor, you know, or you want to live in a certain neighborhood. It's it's this weird kind of no that is ethereal in nature, but doesn't come from heaven on high. It it comes from the subterranean world underneath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is oppressive and you know, full of full of full of heat and angst. The no, the no, it's such a hard no. You know, and that's what makes it so incredibly frustrating. And it I have a game comes- show pitch for yes. BET Network. And the game show is called, was it my resume or was it because I'm black? And oh you, basically the game show takes a bunch of scenarios, Frederick, mm-hmm. and asks the question, was I not good enough or was I too black? And we just kind of go through it and everybody has to guess. And you like, maybe you make a wager on which one it is. Mm -hmm. And then you bring out the person who made the decision and, you know, maybe they take a polygraph or something like that or agree to tell the truth. And they they say, Hey, it's because, and look, it's not like, again, it's not limited to black or white. My roommate uh, in college is, is, he's an Indian Gujarat 
dude. He's like biracial, white, and and, and Gujarat Indian, and his name is so he has a very Indian name. Um, and he found that no one. So he's a Mensa. He's in 98.8 degree Mensa or something, I think, or 98.1 or anyway, he's a summa cum laude, Vanderbilt, three yeah. degrees, econ, math, all this good stuff. Mm-hmm. So when he went out to go into the work, the workplace, no one wants to work with. So he changed his first name to Ethan. And to this day, he's in the when he goes to the workplace, he goes out as Ethan. Everyone wants to work with Ethan. As long as you have a regular sort of, mm-hmm. like you said, cis white name, like Ethan, you like, great. And right. I think sometimes that maybe the answer to my question earlier is about the other is mm-hmm. maybe we are just lazy. Like you said, maybe we just don't want have time to learn about you. Oh yeah. They I've always learn. joked that the biggest problem a white dad has with, his daughter dating a black person is that he has to come over for Thanksgiving. <laughs> now he has to learn what he can and can't say at his own Thanksgiving table. And it's not fucking worth it. It's, it's like, the people are lazy that there's an inherent laziness about our society, but it's been there from the beginning. They got here with their funny hats on their colonial pilgrims or whatever they were. And they're like, eh, these Indians, we got to get rid of them. They, no one said Let's try to work with them, talk to them, sit them down for a minute. Let's go to coffee with right. the natives and figure this out. Well, they did eat with them. They ate their maize. Allegedly. Allegedly. But, but that's what I'm saying. Like, they create the, this, this mythology about things. They create these lies. You know, this land is your land. This land is my land. Come on, man. The, ear, the early settlers, I think, were willing to sort of cohabitate, but they needed the Indians. They were going to die. Exactly. Basically, the they had no sense of that wilderness, no bearing on the land whatsoever. They were starving. None of their plans worked out. Their ships were wrecked. Exactly. They couldn't go back to England. Exactly. And so that's where Thanksgiving started. And then when their fortifications came over, Frederick, then it was on. Exactly. Yeah. They, they use that right now for us. That's, that's their business model for everything. When we really need these darkies, Will you, <laughs> you know, but oh, then when we don't God. need them anymore, yeah. you know, we're going to look <laughs> the other way. That's the move. That's the move. It seems, it seems to be, um, I, I'd love to take a, a pivot sure. and go to, uh, we'll pivot left or right here and talk about some of your docs. Because you, you haven't always been told no. no, and you've also been able to go out and just do your own thing, even during COVID. Um, your film, Counter Histories, Rock Hill, award-winning documentary, it talks about the sit-ins in South Carolina during the late 50s and early 60s. Uh, Nashville is famous for its own sit-ins. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell me what was significant about the Rock Hill sit-ins? You, you probably could have chosen from a variety of sit-ins. Why Rock Hill? Yeah, I mean, there was the, the choice was Nashville. The choice was Baltimore. Um, there were many other places that had these counter sit-ins. Greenville, um, uh, Greensboro. Um, and like I said, as high as Baltimore. 
as well, going up the the, the northeastern seaboard as well. Um, mm-hmm. Rock Hill was a unique set of circumstances because it was about young people coming together, and in particular, young black men. Okay. And I am very interested in the uh, the journey and the diaspora of black men. It's what I know. You know, I'm a black man. Right. And I like the dynamic or the energy of when black men get together and decide to do something about something and change it. We have been living in a world where black men are ridiculed, put down and marginalized and separated from black women. Like when you look at the industry the way it is now, it's like black women are doing their thing in the film industry Mm -hmm. with very little discussion about black men. And with all due respect to, to black female filmmakers and many of them, I think are extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And I've worked with many of them and even more I'm friends with and comrades with. Regina King comes to mind. Yes. Mm -hmm. When it comes to their portrayal of black men, sometimes I have some questions. (laughs) Fair enough. Black men do it to them too. And there's this private holy war that goes on between the black filmmaker that's male and the black filmmaker that's female. And that's before we get even into the black filmmaker that's LGBTQ or trans or whatever, just Mm -hmm. on the cisgendered spectrum, they're just hurling bombs and grenades at each other all the time in their stories. Who's the bad one? Who's the bad one? Who's the bad one? Yeah, we've hurt each other so much over. Oh my God. It's so incredibly dysfunctional and it's got PTSD all over the place and it's completely unnecessary. I mean, we need to have a conference closed door conference with black male filmmakers and black female filmmakers and hug this out. Yeah. You know? (laughs) And so I wanted to make a film that showed black men can be intelligent and articulate and have dignity and stand up to the system and do it in a way that is sophisticated and nonviolent. Right. Even though in my opinion, the violence is justified. You see what I'm saying? Like, if I, you're at a counter and you order a meal and somebody goes upside your head, you should stomp that person in the ground. That's me. But I know that I can't do me in the film. And this is the mistake that a lot of black filmmakers make that I hate. It drives me crazy. I'm so sick of their opinions. Mm. I want something that's going to drive the narrative forward and get us to a higher level of consciousness. And it's not the violence and the anger that does it. No. It is the love and the understanding and the intellect that do that. And we don't have enough black filmmakers that want to focus in that space. And that's why I took the approach that I did. I said, I'm not making this film for white people. I'm making this film to ram it down the throats of other black people so they start to remember that black men are people too and that we got here 
because we are a peaceful people, not a violent one. Right. And to be a proponent of violence and anger and vitriol all the time, we're playing right into the white man's discourse. That's exactly what the white man, yes, they're angry, they're mad. You know, let the dark side flow through you, Luke. And all yeah, that. Not, not to mention st- the stereotypes. Exactly. That's what they, exactly what they want. I want to show how we can rise above all of this. That is my obligation as a filmmaker, in spite of the fact that I might want to slap the crap out of somebody. And I I feel that way every day, dude. Every day something happens to me, like I just want to go whip somebody's ass. But I can't. And I have a responsibility as a person and as a citizen and as a human being not to do that. But in almost a Hippocratic oath, as a filmmaker, not to do that. The right. hard stuff is to teach without the anger and the violence. And that is becoming far more Eastern and, dare I say it, my friend, to make this conversation full circle again, more African. And I don't think enough Black filmmakers in America are in touch with their African side enough. I think they're too co-opted by this imperialistic colonial capitalistic christian weirdness they obsess about it and they think like eye for an eye and all this other crap and it's not doing anybody any good you know i wrote a screenplay recently about an interracial relationship and it's about a white dude and a black woman Mm -hmm. i should send it to you you should. That's my setup. That's my that's my setup right there. I just realized that. I yeah. just realized that I should have I should send this. Yeah, to you. you should you should um you but should it but it, it is resolving all of these cultural conflicts through um being clever. And the humor is in making fun of the anger and the violence. Mm, okay. It's made fun. It's made it's it's shown for the ridiculousness that it is. Violence is stupid and ridiculous and beneath us as a species. There is no reason for us to ever lash out at anybody. Russia should not be fighting the Ukraine. Okay. Like that's the reality that we live in, but people have these agendas. Violence always has an agenda behind it. So black filmmakers that make a lot of things with violence in them, I question what their agendas are. Ah, yeah, that's a good. That's what I and and, and I have a, a big point. problem with with that. Yeah, they they showed a picture online that me and Nick were like shaking our head at of PNB Rock, who was just murdered eating yeah. lunch at Roscoe's, which I found ridiculous. And really, I had a commentary on you know, sort of Gen Z and the heartbreak they're going to feel over and over and over again as their artists are murdered or commit suicide or or arrested Mm -hmm. simply because they have undervalued sovereignty, privacy, and solitude. And it was the lack of privacy, the flippancy around your private location that may have been the death knell and, and the thing that caused his demise. But put that aside, the picture that was shown online of him like the rest in peace with his birth date and, and death date was him holding his wrist up with like a an, an iced out Rolex and mm-hmm. 
and a bunch of jewelry on, but his arm intentionally up like in an unnatural way in a photo. So you can see that, you know, he's got this really uh, iced out, expensive, exclusive watch. And it's like, what is the intention behind that? And is that really like, that's the death image. Like that's the, that would that would his mama have picked that image? No, of course like, not. No way. No, no, so no I way. Just, and, like, and so what is the intention? These people have grown up in a generation where they're not human beings anymore. They're avatars. <laughs> they're not real. I have to write that down. They're 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 holograms. <laughs> they're holograms. You know, and they don't think about the implications of their actions, even in death. Even those that are around them, they're not real. They're avatars. Yeah, this guy in Memphis who went around just shooting on Facebook Live. Uh, The kid who went live after he killed XXX Attention. Those those people aren't alive. Those people don't really exist. They've been the only reason that you exist and you're alive is because you have been given the opportunity to perceive the universe. Their ability to perceive has been stunted by electronic devices, video games, crappy rap music, aberrant behavior, the access to porn. Like there's all this stuff that's piled in front of their ability to perceive. Therefore, they do not exist. He doesn't yeah. exist. He it never it never happened. He will be forgotten. Can you remember these? These rappers are dying. Yeah. These cartoonish rappers are dying at an exponential rate, and I can't even keep up with them and remember all of their names. It happens too frequently, and I love it's this too- visual of of saying there's layers between your perception. I almost look at it as jellies over a mm-hmm. a lens. Right. And it's like you're stacking a red one, a green one, a purple one. And, and but by that time, you have no sense of what there's no depth. is being there's shot. No, there, uh, there's no depth. And uh, what is the all. ultimate thing that the white system wants to kill in blacks? It's our depth. What was mm. the thing that they used to us to make us slaves was to take away our depth, right. our language, our culture, our religion, Feeling our identities, or busting up our families, all this other stuff. And you are right to circle this conversation back around again. The new plantation is social media. Absolutely. Yep. And it's breeding these people back onto the plantations. He's just another dead slave. That's it. No, that's it. And again, there's a, the movie 12 Years a Slave when the guy, the slave dies and they have to bury him and they're just kind of throwing him in a hole. And everybody's like, OK, wait a minute. We need to say something. We need to honor this person. It, it, it's that cut and dry. Nobody cares about a dead black man, kid who is just a rapper. Yeah, it doesn't matter to them. So therefore, the only way he matters is if you, you know, he's got a picture of him holding up and he's all iced out. Yeah. And meanwhile, it was social media that very well could have got him killed. His girlfriend posted a picture of her waffles and chicken and the location. Exactly. In his on on her story. And then he was dead 15 minutes later. They're not real. They're not logical human beings. You and I, if we if we were in his posse, we'd be like, yo, man, don't be posting nothing. Yeah, you're like because sitting in LA. Because they understand how the world works. They don't understand yeah. how the world works. Yeah, exactly. 
There's a lot of things I was taught like foundationally from my mom that are considered ridiculous and antiquated now. Like they're not. I never you you never talk about your money, for example. Well, I was just in a board meeting the other day and uh they were talking about how this generation does share their salary. Absolutely. And and their money with one another. Because they're and, they're not real, they're not real people. And, they're, per- and, they're performative. They're yeah, per- every, like, the, intellectual the, the, friends hate that word, performative. Yeah, it's it's a little it's a, and, and well performative too in the podcasting game. One of the things that people either love or, or hate is this thing called brocal fry. Have you heard of brocal fry? It happens a lot on podcasts and it happens on radio, but it, especially on like NPR radio, who which I love. I'm on the board, full disclosure. But there's a lot of brocal fry in that where they say where there's they're affecting their voice essentially sure. for the broadcast. They're putting a like a brocal fry on their voice. Um, you could think of it as like going, like raising your voice at the end of every word like this, or like, you know, you're changing, affecting your voice on purpose. Uh, guys will make their voice intentionally more croaky. You know, I'm here with Frederick Taylor and, uh, it's like, like you don't really talk like that. You're talking like that for the thing. So it is, it is weird. Sure. Um, I mean, auto tunes is literally replacing the vocal performance in particular, ironically with the men. Yeah. I, I hear more vocal performances by men through auto tunes than a natural soulful black male voice. Like sometimes I get so sick of modern black male singers and rappers. I, I have to go listen to old school stuff. I'm like, I got to go yeah. listen to Donny Hathaway. So I feel grounded. So you feel great. Yeah. So, you know, it's real because AI is coming right behind that. That's just a precursor to AI writing your song and singing your song. And, exactly. and they, and they want to do these, these sort of, um, um, tests, um, was a Keating test, like a test to find out, can we tell a difference between an AI R and B singer and, and, uh, let's say for example, since you brought up Donny Hathaway and uh, the real thing, it's it's going to be a fascinating next couple of decades uh, for sure. Ab- about two decades That's ago, we'll be leaping off of that speeding train, right? <laughs> okay, we're <laughs> one leaping way, one way or another. One way or uh, another, we're off. We're off. We're not gonna. We're not gonna hang. We're gonna go <laughs> off and do our own thing. That's right. The fifth wave. Um, yeah. About two decades ago, you wrote, produced, directed, and edited your mm-hmm. first short film, Psychospasm. This was in 2000. Yeah. Is this any, is any part of that film audio autobiographical? Um, audio autobiograph in the sense of observational. Okay. Um, what that film short film does is that it is the precursor in predicting the emergence of the black Atlanta based filmmaker. Mm-hmm. So if there's anything that's autobiographical about it, that's specific to me, it's not the main character who's the director. It's the DP shooting it. it. Got it. Okay. That's probably the closest representation of me. Is there a lot of places you can see this or is there just. It's so funny because it's just, you know, it's it's just on website. It's just on the website. I should put it on YouTube. You know, like I should. 
I, I need to revisit it. That's that's for, <laughs> that's for sure. If you, do, if you do that, then you won't release it. Exactly. It's terrifying. I mean, it, it literally it's it it predates the whole explosion of Atlanta filmmakers. It literally yeah. gives you a blueprint for who who these people are, and this that insanity that was the nineties freaknik. Yeah. All that hot garbage that got blown into the 21st century as legitimate black art. Right. Yeah. That's the problem. It's garbage. And people outside of the core ecosystem of the group, black people think it's okay. It's perfectly okay. This is great. This is black people being black people. No, it's not. These are dysfunctional black people getting over that's what it is that they have muscled their way into the business that's and well, they're incompetent well put you know and it's okay to be black and be incompetent you know it's to the point where like you know that tv show atlanta like they turned it into something avant-garde right yeah great but now they like Dumb people are writing articles about like they've lost their black edge. They now write for a white audience and all this other stuff. What, what? is what, what's 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 black about? You know what I mean? I like you have to ask about like yes, you do. It's not ghetto enough because season one and two was ghetto, and then the other seasons were not ghetto. What's black so about being it's ghetto? Not, it's not black enough. That's what I want. That's what I want people to write and answer. What's black about being poor and ghetto? I think that's what it's like to be I think it's that's what it's like to be white to be poor and ghetto is to be subverted by the oppressive white colonial system whether it's your fault or not that's where you are and that's interesting but that's not blackness no that is not has nothing poverty has nothing to do with blackness. You said circling back around again, you said earlier, you know, there was a time like maybe they didn't have a lot of money financially, but they were rich in culture and tradition and people. Yeah. They've wiped all that off the table. Right. No, they buried that when they buried Dr. King, you know, and we live in a world now where you can't even be respectable and be black. Let you can't be male. You can only be female and be black and intellectual. Black intellectual men are considered queer. Hmm. It's crazy. You know, the misnomers that people have put on people. We did get Neil deGrasse Tyson. We do get that in and uh, as Michael a, that's Eric party. Dyson. We do have that. We literally yeah. the guy that understands the interstellar universe is a really <laughs> cool black dude. And that's from, exactly. You know, we get we, we get Cornell West, we get a few, we get a few players yeah. in the game trying to make this work and make this happen. But yeah, Obama, but those are dudes. You know who I could listen talk to all day long? Winfred Marsalis. Oh yeah. He's a genius. Oh my black, God, so, dude. But overlooked. He should be God. And people, I thought Winfred Marcellus is a genius since I was a kid. And people He's more than a musician, bro. He's more than he's a he's an he's an intellectual. He's a throwback to those old jazz guys who were just like, yeah, I do the jazz thing on the side in order to express myself intellectually. That's who Thelonious Monk was, Coltrane yeah. was, uh, Davis was. These are geniuses. Marcellus is a genius. 
he was just born too late. You yeah. know, he was born in the hip hop era, essentially. He's a phenomenon of the past 50 years. Yeah, I just sit down music, and listen to him they, talk, man. Oh, yeah. I mean, they just, when they killed King, they killed us. And us, I'm meaning black men, you know? And we've just been scuffling ever since to find our way. And now we're just, we're just like the new white girl, basically. We're just sexualized. (laughs) Yeah. And when you're, when you're a young man, you, you kind of, a young black man, I'll say this, you kind of revel in the stereotypes. Oh, completely. And and as you get older, you realize how freaking how stupid you were. We it's can't so even have we can't even empty. have that podcast. We can't sit here and talk about the dumbass things that we did as a younger black man and our ability yeah. to just drain the club and plow through and yeah. get anybody that we want. It was ridiculous. Yeah. And it was poison in our minds with once again the white man going, Yes, my plan is working. This right. Is like where you decide to embrace a stereotype instead of yeah. for, for everything it. that it's worth. Rocked so you can so you get your temptations off. Rocked it. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, to, it's really, to what end? To what end? I don't get a check. That's for that. where it gets cold. It's like you realize it's I I, I don't yeah. have anything to lean on. There's no safety net I've built because I've I've invested in this thing that means nothing, means nothing. and doesn't make you part of the club. Exactly. So the club yeah. that you've tra- been trying to get in or whatever. That's um, why that new series, uh, uh, American Gigolo, that they redid. Yes. It should have been a black guy. I need to check it out. I haven't seen it. It would have been great if it was a black guy. Okay, I'll check it out, and then I will. I will. Only tr- a black will, guy can be a gigolo. I will it's close like my you know, eyes and try to insert. Insert insert your black man here. Yeah, into into that. Um, you did talk about that, like you've been all over the world mm-hmm. with your filmmaking and seeing racism in a ton of different places. You've seen poverty in a bunch of different places. You've seen classism um, and even disease. You um, did go to Romania to do your film after the fall, mm-hmm. HIV grows up i i am curious how you found out about that crisis the pediatric aids epidemic in romania through uh, emory university um and their affiliation with um a, a boots on the ground organization Got in it. romania as as well can you describe um, what it's like in romania when you at least when you went mm-hmm. uh it is not anything you can imagine. You're talking about a culture that has been put upon for a hundred years. You know, mm-hmm. it was, you know, under sort of totalitarian rule, you know, traditional 19th century, you know, rule. And then World War One, World War Two, the not the communists, you know, Western Europe hates Eastern Europe, and they've just used it as a, a, a wedge between Russia and Europe. Mm. You know, and it's just, it's been a killing ground forever. And the number of people that have been abused, they have housing projects, they have crime, they have corrupt politicians, they have a very poorly run healthcare system in certain instances, in certain places. And if you asked me, would you rather live in a housing project in Bucharest, 
Romania or the South Side of Chicago, I'm gonna pick South Side of Chicago. I would rather live in a housing project in America than live in a housing project in Eastern Europe. I feel safer. That's how unsafe that place can be at times. And the, the marginalization, you can always judge a country by the way it treats its women. Uh, interesting. And that is the biggest learning lesson I had in traveling around the world. The places I went where the countries were on the rise, they're ascending, they seem really great. Things are pretty cool. They treat their women a lot better. Mm. And then the places were like, this place is crazy. I'm scared. They treat their women horribly. That is the great barometer. And that is what I have real serious concern for, for America now. And that when people say, when I get into the Roe v. Wade debate, I'm like, we are going backwards. And the mere fact that we are treating women or trying to treat women like property right. is saying that we are not invested in America moving forward yeah. and that we're going to go sideways. It's, it, it's not going to end well. You cannot treat women poorly and expect to run a society that is respected and reputable. It's impossible. Can't do it. I feel like it's a distraction and, and you know, please take this the right way. And those mm-hmm. listening, take this the right way. I'm not saying the issue isn't at, you know, insignificant. That's not what I mean by distraction. What I mean is, is why are all these men concerned with the sexual uh, lives and reproductive lives of women they don't know like why is that on the agenda instead of uh, the economy which is the government's the, the protection of property rights and the protection of human rights is the government's sole job right and uh, so so and then somebody will say well that baby's a human but there is a hierarchy in place Right. And the hierarchy says that a person uh, that grows in another person is by default sort of, for lack of a better term, lower on the hierarchical scale of priorities. And, and so the person that's growing inside that person is at the whim for that time being of the person carrying it. And, and so their easy answer is give people that freedom of choice. And the reason why I can confidently sit in that seat and and sort of lean on that philosophy and lean on that principle is because no, I grew up with most, mostly women and no woman wants an, wants an abortion. It's a brutal procedure and you will avoid it at all costs. So again, I go back to your question, Frederick, what is the agenda? So there's my little, I don't like to be political in this podcast, but it's, um, I I, I usually let the guests handle that for me, but I will say that's kind of my, my thought process. What is the agenda behind this? Because I would like my tax dollars to go towards helping people um, uh, stay safe, meaning from, from, from force of violence, let's say, and being able to uh, protect and own their property. Yeah. The, the, the agenda, because one, this is not a political issue. This is a humanitarian one. 
and a humanitarian one in, in, in a sense that, you know, we need to protect women and the interests of women. And we need to also protect the interests of society uh, as, as, as well. Um, the reason that people are obsessing about this, I believe, is because the unborn fetus is perceived as controllable. The born person slowly becomes uncontrollable unless they are gestating in an environment where they can be manipulated and where they don't know truth. And so, in my opinion, a lot of people that are for eradicating um, women having the right to controlling their reproductive capabilities is to one, distract some of the things you've talked about earlier from other more important issues, because that is part of their agenda is to not talk about other important things. It's to obsess about these things that keep this swirling discourse of theocracy going. There are people that believe that we should not be a democracy, we should be a theocracy. And there are people that believe that the only true religion is Christianity and Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, and that's it. Mm -hmm. And everything else is a sin. And they also believe that women are to be subverted to men. There are people that live in that particular space or, or thinking as well. And this is where the ignorance pours in because on one level, these same people don't actually like people of color. They don't want people crossing the border, but they don't even look at the numbers and say, you know, if you get, you get rid of abortion, then a lot more people of color are going to have babies too. You don't even like people of color. And then you keep thinking like, oh, that, that means more white people are going to have babies. Not really. Cause white people are still going to get abortions because most of them can afford to have them. And then the people that can't afford to have them that are white are going to be really poor people, you yeah. know, and they're not going to be able to really impact anything in society. Well, well that's, you know, that's, that is something I read. If I can interject, that's sure. an important point. I just want to, I want to earmark that. Sure. Because I read, I can't remember. I think it might've been on Substack. I don't know if you read articles on Substack or not, Frederick, but I, okay. I, I read that the idea behind it is that the birth rate right now in the United States is 1.6. And you need 2.1 to sustain society, right? But the but the birth rate uh, in minorities is above 2.1. And if you can federally block abortion, then you force 20 and 30-year-old white women who have enjoyed the greatest success of all women outside of maybe Asian women in, in executive spaces. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the last 30 years, you mm-hmm. force them to have children, therefore keeping the population margins the way they are, where the country's 70 percent white. And so the whole game is a is a is a long play, a long con to ensure that white women start not only conceiving, which they've stopped doing. Like sure. so there's a lot of like I'm married with a dog. And I'm never having a kid because I'm the breadwinner and I can't afford to stop and I'm choosing career over child. Or I'm married to a black guy or I'm married to a Latin guy or right. I'm married to an Asian guy. Like they're and, not married. White women, 
don't marry white dudes all the time. Well, white guys right now are taking the L in society because they're not graduating college. Those yeah. those white collar jobs that paid eighty thousand dollars a year are going away and being replaced by robots. There's a lot of angst in that, and I get that. They're also incompetent. It. They're and also they're, incompetent, and right. they don't have the social skills to be able to navigate with all the other kinds of people, and especially women. Right, and they're they're trying to figure out what what's the next step in this new world, and they're finding people to blame. Is it the black people? Is it the people coming sure. over the border? Is it the president? Is it the communists? Is it is it is it the Clintons? You know, it's all these things, but. Um, but what's happening is this is a long play to force those professional white women to have children and, and plenty of them. But they're not. That's they're what I read. Places. They have planes, trains, and automobiles. They have other ways and vehicles yeah. of being able to do things. There's a ton of women out there that are doctors. There's a ton of other doctors that are happy to help women. You can go to another country and get an abortion. The, the amount of... Uh, but that's know, what the ideological part is about, Frederick. It's sure. about It's about saying, let's couple this new sort of... You know, that's why you have some of these white politicians um, coming on saying, let's be Christian nationalists. So let's mix this theology, Frederick, with this new law. Exactly. And now you will be socially and sort of uh, spiritually obligated to have these children. Exactly. And here's the weird part. It all falls down again. Here we go. Circling back again. Everything is black. Guess who's guess whose head it lands on? Clarence Thomas's. Yeah. <laughs> Again, like every time we circle around, we start all this cultural crap. It lands back in blackness every single time. And guess what? Now we got a dude that is black that's kind of a jerk, and yeah. he's been a jerk for like forty years. You know, Anita Bryant said he was a jerk. No one believed it, but guess what? He's a jerk. His mm-hmm. wife's a jerk, and they're just a couple. They're a jerk couple. Yeah. You know, yeah. and he, he lives with that a jerk couple. <laughs> exactly. And he that. just has all of these like super conservative, manipulative white people shining his ass to tell him he's doing the right thing. He's doing God's work. Yeah. And he's unbelievably insecure on. I've never seen a more insecure black man in my life that has come from the ashes of the South to the highest of heights and doesn't have any sense of obligation for who he is and where he comes from and the greater good. And he sits on the Supreme court and he does nothing to (laughs) ensure the security and sanctity of this country moving forward. I I wasn't sure if you were going to stop the word nothing. He's the the guy. If he could just get his head out of his rear this wouldn't be a problem. What's he getting? Like, what does he get a check for being a jerk? I think maybe he knows what room he's in. You, you know, the way that he wants his bread buttered is insane. That's why the documentary that I made, Rock Hill, it's about black men making the right choices. Yeah. And he's someone who makes the wrong choices for humanity. Not, I'm not even talking about blackness. I'm talking about for humanity. I'm talking to, uh, about the, the sanctity of the ascension of womanhood. Don't you want to be a part of that? Right. He, he has no desire to lift us into the 21st century, even though he is a product of people who fought and died in the previous centuries in order for him to have this gig. Yeah. That's, you know uh, what I mean? Yeah. I just want Thurgood Marshall 
to come back from the dead and whip <laughs> this guy's ass. Another that movie idea, great. right there. That's the movie that I want to make. That suddenly That's another another genius Frederick movie idea. Uh, <laughs> speaking of Rock Hill, by the way, and yes. and and um, uh, after after um, after the fall, I you, you have so many more docs you've you've made that we haven't talked about. Um, yes. I am curious in your own opinion, mm-hmm. and I know it might make you feel uncomfortable to sort of pat yourself on the back, but in your own opinion, which one of your films uh, had the greatest impact for change in, in your opinion, at least so far? So far, um, it's a film I made in uh, 2020. Uh, it's called Pre-Existing Freedom. It's actually only a 15 minute film. It was an experimental documentary film that I'd like to actually explore and and make it longer. I think it's a more intriguing piece. It's a longer piece. It was just so scary and so impactful when I made it. I I made the first version at six minutes and then got the courage to say, okay, I'm going to go for 15 here. And um, it's the one that um, to me, has created the most change where people were moved. Like it just, it, it, it shifted the ground that they were on um, based on the world around them, people, their feelings, COVID race, culture, all of those things that were colliding in 2020 at hundred miles an hour that people were having a very difficult time unpacking and making sense of. And I decided to make a documentary that was unpacking that and making sense of it because I was in a state of Nirvana at that particular time because I had nothing to do. Yeah. And when that whole period, when there was nothing to do, your mind becomes clearer. You can see deeper into the universe. You can understand better. And I, you, instead of, pouring tiger king into my head and (laughs) drinking wine and eating food and sitting in my home and gaining 20 pounds or the other extreme where you saw people jogging all the time yeah which was ridiculous too um i made a film and i made something that was um completely personal and raw and real and it was this person relating to the bigger world and i didn't realize the significance of it until i got into it and realized my blackness was playing into it at first i wasn't thinking about my blackness Mm -hmm. and then i realized like wow we don't get a chance to see black people talk about how they feel about something important and significant beyond their troubles Mm -hmm. we it's always like black people are talking about uh my dad's in jail my mom's on crack living in the streets i got shot i'm with prison all this uh, i can't eat whatever all this stuff that we've stereotyped as the black experience what happens when all those things are taken care of the world has stopped everybody's paying attention to the same thing and now a black person's going to comment on it and what do they say what do they think and they're identifying as black and they're cool with it. And they have the ability to communicate across cultural lines. The most powerful thing for me as a person is that I'm dark skinned and I can talk. 
and I can speak and I can speak in a way it's disconcerting to people to listen to me talk. Sometimes they don't even know how to handle it. Mm-hmm. And that's just the black people before I even get into the white people. Right. You know, you know, you know what kind of person really likes the way I talk Asians. Why Asian people Asians? really like, because I speak clearly and distinctly and they, they love the way they, they want to talk like me. They're like, yeah. you talk so clearly. Yeah. You talk past your 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 cultural accents into a space in English where people um, find you to be very palatable. And that's mm-hmm. a very desirable space for many Asians is to be taken seriously with yeah. how they speak. That's a great. great and so point. Asians like the way that I uh, I talk and I identify with them on an intellectual level. I I, in, I agree with that. My brother-in-law is Laotian and he still has his accent after 50 years, but I think he couches that thing you're talking about, Frederick, in mm-hmm. humor. Right. And I think most people do that. It's not a Laotian it's thing. Fun. That's just a human thing. It's like, it's like, let's, let's couch our insecurities in humor. Let's couch it in violence. Let's couch it in, you know, you ever, that's that whole thing where you come home from college as a black person and then your, your uncle sitting there, he's like, I can still whoop your ass. Oh and yeah. Like, and, and you're like, I'm and, always going to be hood. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate yeah. that. Right. And, and he's couching his insecurity about his intellect in his violence. Exactly. Like the thing he thinks he, he can still do. I, I, I find that endlessly fascinating. And I, I, I want to just speak to the power of film. Mm-hmm. And we're both in film because of how powerful it is. Imagine a 15 minute film that right. can get across what it gets across in that period of, of time. And I always go back to a great filmmaker, Emil Giardo out of Los Angeles, mm-hmm. who has a one minute short film that will move you. It, it's w- literally one minute long. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course he also has the film on HBO max uh, one, two, three, all eyes on me that I've, I've bragged on a lot of times that everybody mm-hmm. should watch that. If they get the chance, uh, Frederick, I'm going to take you down a didactic path here okay? because this audience needs and wants to learn, obviously, from an Emmy winning documentarian like yourself, multiple award winning documentarian. So let's get into some of these more tactical tool uh, methodology type questions. Sure. Uh, what is your approach to narrative on a documentary? Do you know the story arc in advance or do you trust that one will emerge as you film? It's both. Um, I always go in with a particular story arc or an idea or a predisposition or perception. I think that that's very important in sort of driving yourself forward. I'm a big fan of one of my favorite explorers of all time is Magellan. Mm -hmm. And Magellan, unlike Columbus, Magellan was a real stickler for using the compass and mathematics and like really trying to figure out where the hell he was going. You know, <laughs> Columbus was kind of winging it sometimes, yeah. you know, and um, then what it allowed Magellan to do was make adjustments when things would get a little wacky. Okay. You know, and it created an opportunity for him to discover things that, Columbus never discovered, like, you know, Magellan discovered the, the Magellan Straits at the bottom of South America. You know, Columbus was a clown and found his way to the Caribbean, was calling everybody an Indian. That's mm. Columbus. You know, he's a me, he was a meatball. And so 
this is, do you, how hard is it to, as a filmmaker, not force your preconceived story arc into the story to, to not manipulate well, it, it? It, it, it's, it's going to come out whether you think it is or it's not. Sometimes you can control it. Um, and you have to push past that. Like sometimes people will do something so insane and outrageous that you just want to turn the camera off. Okay. But you're like, I can't because it's their truth. And I fight with other people that work with me all the time. It's the biggest problem I have with working with other people in documentaries. They're always turning my camera off <laughs> because I don't, I don't like that. That was too weird. I don't understand that. That was like, you know, and they push certain narratives, um, you know, and I'm like, you've got to, keep it rolling. And then you have to know when to shut up and not stick your nose in it too. Because the other problem is, is that a lot of people, and I hate to say this, but you know, a certain number of my friends of color that make documentaries, they're in there needling. They're in there trying to get people to elicit a specific response. Like you can't walk up to a clan member doing a documentary and go like, why are you a racist? You can't right. do that. You know what you do when you walk up to a clan member that you're interviewing for a documentary, you go like, What'd you have for breakfast? See uh, what I'm saying? Yeah, that's, that's brilliant. Totally different. Totally different. That's my approach to filming people that are not in favor of me. Mm. You know, yeah. um, you have to break them down you, and they, they break themselves down. You can't open anybody up like this fantasy that we have as documentary filmmakers sometimes, and I'm going to make the thing that's going to change the world. And I'm going to make people see and understand, blah, 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 blah. Not going to happen. <laughs> decide what they're going to decide when they're ready to decide it. Right. You know? Now, interesting documentary, like if you had interviewed some of the people that, you know, ran up on the Capitol building on January 6th, like yeah. before they had the idea they're going and you're hanging out with them before they go and then they do it in the day of and you have all that footage and now they're going to jail. Mm-hmm. And now you interview them for jail. And then you ask them about what they did two years ago, two, three years ago. How how you liking that? Yeah. Different perspective. Somebody that's like, oh, yeah, COVID is not anything. Blah, blah, blah. And then you go interview someone that survived being on a ventilator. Mm-hmm. And then like, oh, well, I got a different opinion. Now. That's right. Me and them. I like the, I like the methodology. Exactly. Um, so I, I think that for me, I I just try to stay aware when to ask the questions, when not to ask the probing question, when to ask the probing question, you know, when to keep the camera on. And then of course, when to, to turn it off. And like, I've had problems with people of color. Like I'm out there, I'm shooting black lives matter stuff. And then the old black man, the March with King, the young brothers and sisters don't want to interview that guy. Uh, and I'm like, that's guy I want to interview. I don't care about right. these new people. Right. You know, they wanted to go interview the guy that um, was the Black Lives Matter guy that ended up embezzling all that money. Yeah. That guy? I have I have an interview with that guy, not because I wanted it, but because the other people that I was working, they were, you know, my crew, right. they were like, oh, we want to interview. This guy seems so cool. I was like, you know something? That's something I do that I don't like. Something's wrong with him. He's a little too charismatic he's a little bit too on point he's a little bit you know what i mean too with the knowledge i'm like this guy's got he's, he's polished he's not he's not going to give you what you want anyway exactly and, it was and, all just he was ready for it and i'm like that's not the guy i'm trying to interview 
You I know? love the idea of disarming someone with the question. Oh yeah. You have what to. did you have for breakfast? Exactly. You gotta you gotta come in there and you what can't a way to eat. disarm someone. That's you amazing. Have to disarm them. I, 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 I love you that. Have to. You you know, and you gotta be your best self in certain instances. You you can't dap them up. Sometimes you got to come in there and you got to be like super intellectual type or whatever. You you got to yeah. you got to read the room. If you really want to get to the story. Because the one thing that is true about everybody, everybody wants to be on TV. <laughs> everybody wants to be on TV. So there it is rare when someone says, "No, turn the camera off. I'm not interested." Mm-hmm. You know, usually that person's you know, doing something illegal or something. Like there's just something else going on there. They're like, they're not interested in you shooting them. The only time I've ever been my experience too. Oh yeah. And only with environmental stuff have people just told me to get the bleep out of here. Yeah. Like those people, those people are up to some shady, shady, shady stuff. There's people I grew up with that didn't want to be on film. And I thought to myself, that's the most dangerous person I know. Like everybody wanted to be part of this particular exactly. thing I'm, I'm talking about, and this one or these two people didn't. And I was like, they had something to hide. I knew, I knew what was up with them. I knew, but they weren't. They were the serious ones. They were. Mm-hmm. They weren't there for the clout. Mm-hmm. They were there for the blood and the money. And I was like, oh, yeah. godly. And they were the most calm people. They weren't like. Oh yeah. They They're weren't like calm. loose. They weren't like loose ends. They weren't like. They, so, yeah, I think it's a great thumb or, or a, a great uh, signal. Exactly. Um, Cubans in Florida, conservative Cubans that are Republican. I found it difficult to interview them mm. now, but then Cubans from Florida that are Republican that had emigrated to Atlanta, they'll talk. They'll run their mouths. all. What's long. the difference? I don't know. Couldn't figure it out not quite sure like what the deal is. I, I think it has something to do with Miami and the fact that they got there from Cuba and never left Miami. Right. And it's kind of a little bit of a trade secret here that we've got this backdoor deal, the whole Castro thing, and mm-hmm. we don't want to screw it up. Oh, we got, got a handshake yeah. agreement with the conservative right. You protect our interests. We're not going to say anything bad about you. Mm-hmm. The ones that then eventually Miami, they go other places, they'll yap. Yeah, they're not next to the ocean anymore. They're not, they're, they don't, and, and that might have something to do with it because Miami's really nice. That's right. So, you, you know what I mean? Like, they don't want to screw it up. Yeah, that's you know? right. So, you, there, like I said, there's other agendas that are always behind these behaviors as to why people do things. And sometimes it's literally because they like living where they live. You know, I'm sure yeah. people that live on the French Riviera. Or just, or just access to being taken back is easier. I think it's, you know, if you move from Miami to Kansas, it's a little bit harder to, to deport you. True. But it's true. Yeah. There's that. No, I, you're I, harder I, to find. More. Yeah. You can get yeah. deeper into the system. No. And, and I'm sure that that, that might have something to do with it uh, as, as well. But, you know, to your point, like everybody's got these weird agendas and sometimes you're able to unearth those agendas and other times you're never ever 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 going to find out the truth about it and you might as well just leave them alone it's not gonna it's, it's not gonna happen it's like when people like no one's made a documentary about you know um factions of organized crime 
it's not gonna happen. You know, it's just like people are always in Georgia. It's like, let's make a documentary about, you know, the sex trafficking industry. And like 45,000 young women are moved around every year. You ain't making that documentary. It's not happening. You can make it, but but the information you get might not be novel. It's going to be skewed. And you might not make it. Right. You know what I mean? There, there are like, a few like crime documentaries, but it's all found footage. It's like a found footage doc or like a exactly. like it, clippings and library posts. It's and a totally different deal. It, but you're it's not very difficult get to get like a, a whole doc on an organized crime family and you're getting first person accounts in modern time. That's really, really difficult to do. Um, in, in, the, in terms of just making documentary and making film, what is your approach to financing? Is there is there a tip or a trick you can share with the listeners of this yeah. podcast, this audience, this mm-hmm. global audience, I should say, about the many ways to and best ways to fund a film? The funding a film boils down to currency, obviously. Now you have to define what currency is. Now currency is many things on many different levels. Currency is influence. Mm-hmm. Currency is also talent and ability and expertise and and technical prowess as well. Currency is also access. And of course, currency is good old fashioned currency. It's money. Right. You know, and those those are moving paradigms within the constellation of you trying to make a documentary and trying to make a documentary is like trying to travel across the solar system. (laughs) You know, it's not specific. Making a movie is like going from one planet to another. We're going to Jupiter. Mm -hmm. That's making a movie. We're kind of just getting out there in space and we're not sure if we're going to land on Jupiter or we're going to end up on Saturn or Pluto. That's a documentary. Yeah. And you have to be prepared for that and have the um, the wherewithal and the bandwidth to be able to pull that off. And one of the big mistakes that a lot of documentary filmmakers make is that they have an idea, but that's it. Mm. Some of them have an idea and they have money and that's it. And they screw that up, you know, or they don't have the physical talent, they don't have the vision or they don't have the technical talent. They don't have the access or the hookups or whatever. There's so many people that are like, I want to make this. I had so many people say, I want to make documentaries about strip clubs in Atlanta. And then they go in there and they get the ass beat in the parking lot trying to get into this strip club. <laughs> I'm like, you have no access. You never, you didn't think about that when they right. broke the camera over your head. So yeah. get out of here doesn't work that way you have to have access to things you know and credibility can do it if you've done documentaries and before and you're award-winning i mean you know ken burns can walk into any situation yeah 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 as soon as whatever he wants to make right whatever he wants to do errol morris can can do that you know so michael moore had you know he had his moment a hot minute he could just kind of do whatever he wanted to do But even with Michael Moore, once he started really pissing people off, he lost the access. Mm -hmm. People are like, eh, no, let Michael Moore here because he's an asshole. They can see him coming. But he does have the the greatest uh, 
box office documentary hit of all time. So. Exactly. And he, he hit it right at the right time in the right way. And kudos and bravo. Yeah. But then he blew his career apart because he started waving his finger at the system demanding change. And the system is not going to change. Like, this is the ridiculous part. Nobody's going to wake up tomorrow and say, okay, we're going to treat everybody right. No, it doesn't work that way. It only works one way. And the one way is the way that Barry Gordy did it. Because Barry Gordy came out of the 50s and they were like, they don't let black people do anything. You can't make any money. There's no record labels. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Guess what, Barry? Start a company. Yep. It was him and Smokey, and they started a company. It was in their basement, and they got that little house, Hitsville, and they went from there, and then they just started recruiting talent, and they built it. You don't do anything in this society as and anybody, black, white, blue, green, purple, by sitting there negotiating with the system. I mean, come on. All the people on the board at Twitter voted to let Elon Musk buy Twitter for $44 billion, like, two days ago. Yep. You know Why? Because they're going to make a bunch of money. Yeah. That's the game. Even though we all know that Elon Musk should not buy Twitter. And we know that it's morally wrong because he's a loon. You know? But they're going to do it because of the money. The money. The money's the thing. That's, the, that's why Jackie Robinson got in the major leagues because of the money. That's why there aren't any black owners in the NFL because of the money. They're like, yeah, we don't want to mess with the money. Until the money's right. There's no way we're going to let anybody black have a team. It's not yeah. happening. That's the that's, that's the color of of our exactly. green. But we don't have the guts to say everybody black's just going to go off and have their own league. They're going to have the Negro Football League, which would be way better than the white one, by the way. And the basketball, we could go do it. We're just afraid. We're programmed. We're scared yeah. of white people. Black people, and I'll, I'll stand and fight any black person in the parking lot on this one. We're afraid of white people. We're terrified. We mm -hmm. always think we need to be around them and do what they, we don't need them. We never, we never needed them. Barry Gordy sold Motown in the eighties to, to Polygram. Um, you know, Robert Johnson sold BET, you know, 12, 15 years ago for $5 yeah. billion, whatever. We sell our stuff off. We don't build economic communities, you know, with all due respect to Tyler Perry studios, He's not developing new talent. He doesn't have anybody on that lot that's creating new content. He's not shooting anything except the stuff he wants to shoot or what he rents out to the Marvel companies. Mm -hmm. Now, that's fine. That's his business paradigm. But guess what? The second that the Medea thing doesn't hit anymore or he starts losing a bunch of money or he starts hemorrhaging and Disney's going to walk in and say, we'll buy it from you. We'll buy it. We'll take it from take it off your hands. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying that's going to happen. I don't want that to happen. You know what I want him to do? I want him to hire you. I want him to hire me. And I want him to like give us an office and we develop stuff. And he like has faith that like, I'm going to write checks against you guys talent. He doesn't do that. We don't do that because we're afraid the white people won't like us. If they start bringing in too many darkies into the party, they want to control that. You know, it's crazy. It's absolutely, it's absolutely crazy. We've created this on our own. We've, we, we are literally sinking our own ship. Instead of being Magellan, we are Christopher Columbus. Yeah, and and I don't hear that and and think separatist. I don't, I don't think that. Yeah, I, I hear it and just think. It's economic. What, 
why can't we do what other communities have done? You know, uh, slaves, uh, Jews were slaves for 9,000 years. They figured it out and have solidarity, solidarity in their community without being separatists at all. And so I think advocating for that is really smart. Now I will be full transparency. I am uh, an Elon Musk apologist and we can go back and forth on him at, a, at, at another time. Uh, and and, and uh, I, I don't think that he should buy Twitter. That's where I agree with that's, you. That's my only, that's what I'm mad about. I, I think agree with you on that. I think he should go to space. I just don't think he should buy Twitter. You know, I, but I, it, it's an overreach. Right. And, and I would say the only counter to that is, is that the people that run Twitter to your point mm-hmm. have been grifting sure. for a decade at least. Easily. Meaning, yeah, they're exposed now. They're exposed. Meaning security issues, meaning sure. half, uh, uh, uh up to, well, let's say up to 20, 30% of their user base being bots. That's actual theft. They need to offload this because of the lawsuits that could come if they don't. That but basically that just means that they lost in court, that they that, that it was proven that more than 5% of their user base were bots. So could you imagine if you're Coca-Cola Corporation and you've poured multiples of millions of dollars into advertising in Twitter only to find out you were you were advertising to fake people? I mean, that's a massive lawsuit. Now multiply that times everybody who's ever spent any dollars, including myself, on ads on Twitter. And now you feel ripped off. You feel ripped off. And that's why I think they have to unload it. Um, curious, what is what is, and how did you forge your relationship with PBS? I mean, it's it's a relationship that's evolved over you know, evolved over time. And then it was accelerated, um, due to circumstances. Um, and some of those circumstances literally outside of my control one, it was a pandemic and they needed somebody. And two, um, I literally ran into the woman that runs the Nashville public television station (laughs) at the Nashville film festival. Um, but you put yourself into those spaces. Now, I had had a relationship with PBS in the past through some other projects that I had worked on. Right. Um, and um, and I've been a big fan of PBS for a long time. So I'm predisposed for it. So when the opportunities presented presented itself, I didn't run from it. I like P- PBS, unlike a certain number of filmmakers who are like, and PBS is too corny for me. It's not for me. I, I yeah. see PBS as a important, you know, an objective brand. channel at the very least. Completely. Exactly. You know, so that was a part of it as well. My respect for PBS is what got me to or near PBS. And then my ability to go out and execute for PBS is what's kind of gotten me over the top. And now I've got relationships with PBS that have leaked over into the BBC. And I thought I was making that leap with the um, Little Richard project, but that one kind of fell through, Um, you know, and as much as I dragged those guys, because I think they made a massive mistake in not hiring me, you know, I still, I just emailed them something the other day that I'm working on about Alfred Hitchcock. And I'm like, yeah, you might be interested in this. What do you think? So I I saw that sizzle yeah exactly so i dance with the devil like i don't like i don't you know i'm in it to win it like i'm not it's all business 
Like it's not like a personal. Right. You right, know, right. I can resent you and still work with you. <laughs> <laughs> I might I might name this podcast that. Uh, <laughs> um, so so you were you nominated? To, tell us about the Emmy process. Were you nominated for an Emmy, or did you have to advocate for yourself to get the Emmy? How does it work? It's a little bit of both. Um, you got to get on their radar for okay. one. Um, PBS is always interested in that kind of thing. PBS obviously is an organization that is one a gazillion Emmys. So things that they find of merit, they're going to push and they're going to Mm -hmm. support and back. Um, And so that was basically how it evolved. Initially, no one thought that it was going to be like an Emmy winning piece. Um, They weren't really sure it was during the pandemic. You know, people weren't allowed to fly anywhere. They had to let me do it on my own. I was doing my own thing with it and how it was being put together. Um, But it worked out. And um, it's not only an Emmy winning piece, it's a telly winning oh you got a telly telly. and then um it also gets screened at film festivals you know all over you know which is great from you know uh palm springs all the way to birmingham alabama um and i think it's a very important piece and once again it's the the focus is on black men and uh another aspect of the black male experience which is uh, the LGBTQ experiences as, as well, which is an interesting uh, counter to the um, hip hop cisgendered universe of black men and the black female universe. It's How not either you... one of those things. And that's what drew me into it. I mean, I'm a cisgendered black male, um, but I have a very strong allegiance to black men in the LGBTQ community because my favorite uncle, my mother's brother was a part of that community and um, passed away prematurely due to HIV. So I feel very strongly about that. So I'm very driven in that space. And you know what it does? It just rubs uh, lame black people the wrong way. And I kind of get off on that too. So I'm not going (laughs) to lie to you. Um, I love irritating, uh, other black filmmakers and challenging their positions (laughs) on things when it comes to, you know, stereotype and sexuality and things like that. I think they're a little bit too pent up sometimes and they're too judgmental and, you know, they feel some kind of way about gay black men and all this other crap. And I'm like, whatever, Uh, eat this. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, How do you specifically advocate for yourself? Like what, what is the best way if you were going to tell someone, here's how you advocate for yourself to get an Emmy. What's the first thing they should do? Um, You got to do something that's worthwhile. You got to really, you got to sit down and you got to say, okay, I got to do a project that's going to like really stand out. That's going to be something that's meaningful and and purposeful or innovative. So it's the film itself. Absolutely. It always comes back to the film itself, you know, and it's got to be something that you feel passionate about and that your passion is transferable into the piece. It should feel like an extension of you. Yes. And then you're putting yourself in the position to win awards and not just an Emmy, but, you know, a telly and a lot of other things uh, as, as well. But you have to find something that has purpose and gravitas and gravity and grit 
to it as well. It just can't be something that's sort of a fly by night kind of thing. And, you know, unless you're going to go get Kevin Hart to host it or something like that, then you've got to come in and find celebrity to buoy it up. And that's a choice. You can do that if you've got that type of access. Right. Again, currency. There's all of these different levels of currency. So you can make something award-winning with no money. If you've got vision, passion, talent, technical talent, and some level of access to something. Yeah. So this idea that I don't have any money, I can't do anything, that's that's hogwash. You know, there are people out there that got crazy skills with with iPhones and know how to edit and they can make something that's astounding. You know, I've made things shooting with, you know, a DSLR that are just amazing or, you know, old mini DV tape and all all kinds of stuff. You know, I have shot video all the way back into the VHS era. Yeah. So I don't want to hear it when somebody says I can't do that because I don't have any money. I'm like, no, that means you're lazy. Yeah. Or, or you like that, there. that ingenuity, creativity to, to right. sort of take what you have and, and make totally. something and make something, of, make something out yeah. of it because that's how our people got here. Like, uh, like, you know, the survivability of, you know, who we are as people, there's there are probably a lot of things that are very similar between your mother and my mother, as far as how they survive and the values that they put inside of us too, as far as, you know, belief systems, hard work, you know, a sense of fair play, the spirit of, 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 of team and community and stuff like that. They both were in healthcare for sure. I think Gloria and Gwen would have been uh, good friends. Yeah. I, uh, think for, I, I agree with you. And for, those for are sure. the kinds of things that you really want to focus on at the time. Absolutely. I'm going to run you through some uh, of our uh, bonsai questions. Okay. So let's take a little quick pivot here. Sure. The questions we love to ask. What are the two best pieces of advice you've received so far in your career and, and who did they come from? Oh, um, one, uh, filmmaker that I knew when I first got started, uh, in Atlanta. And it was, if you, if half the people love you and half the people hate you, you're doing something right. Because if everybody loves you or everybody hates you, you need to reevaluate what you're doing and you might want to (laughs) consider changing your job description. Um, And then the other thing was um, one of my mentors, uh, and he's actually uh, Japanese uh, American and he's older than he's a mentor. He's older than me. And he said, no is the most powerful word in the universe and trust your instincts and you will never be wrong. Mm. And then the other person that I had mentioned, Mark Deck from uh, Kenya, who said you are more African than you are American. And those are some of the things that have been most profound with me. The first thing about half the people love you, half the people hate you. That was a white man. White man told me that. Mm. Um, so you can get life lessons from, from anybody, Yeah, you know, and then the other two were, were men of color. Uh, yeah, I think filmmaking isn't, isn't to that point. It's not about making everyone nod. Yes. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, why did you make a movie? Exactly. 
But maybe, maybe the, tentpole movies are, but but oh, they are. They, not they documentaries. Totally are. And there's not a place documentaries. In them. I get it. I saw documentaries should should push you yeah. somewhere, right? Sure. Oh, abs- absolutely. And but those people that don't get it, you still got to keep them in the boat. And I say this all the time to filmmakers of color because they always act like, well, I don't care if they don't like it, whatever. And I'm like, what are you doing? You're throwing people out of the boat. That's insane. Yeah. Yeah. You have to, it is your job as the filmmaker to reach deeper to keep that person that is the doubter, that is the disbeliever. You're an evangelist. You run a church. You don't want anybody to leave the church. And the ones that aren't sure, you got to work a little harder to keep them in the church. That's your job. Mm-hmm. And, and these these filmmakers are so soft. And I'm going to drag these filmmakers of color for a second. They're so so. They think like the world revolves around them, and everybody gives a crap about their opinions. And if no one likes what they think, they're like, so what? Who cares? Blah blah blah. But I'm going to be on the red carpet, and I want to be rich, I want to be famous, all sort of stuff. And I'm like, you have no skills. You have no ability to talk to someone who doesn't understand you or like you. Yeah. All of the stuff I have done that has gotten me over the top, that has been award winning. I have dealt with people that don't like me or they're not sure about me or I'm weirding them out or I'm making them feel uncomfortable or whatever. That's the real story. That's filmmaking. That's, that's what makes Gordon Parks photography. So great. When you look back and like he's make, taking pictures during the civil rights era and stuff like that, and a little girl standing in front of a, a colored only sign, and you're like, I'm sure everybody was like, I, we hate that black guy that keeps coming around taking pictures. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, for sure. They hated him. But right. now, guess what? He's revered. He's one of the greatest photographers in American history. Speaking of artists that uh, you need to drag so you can teach them a thing, how about we flip it and talk about artists that you admire and want to emulate? I'm curious, who are those creatives and what do they do from a technical or skill standpoint that makes their work stand apart? It's so complex because of the deluge of impotent black art right now that you have to not only dig through a lot of crap to find people that are alive, mm-hmm. <laughs> you're yeah. forced to go back in time. You know, like I can sit around and talk about Jean-Michel Basquiat all day, mm-hmm. but he's gone. I can talk about Thelonious Monk all day. I can talk about Frederick Douglass all day, you know, now, then there are the people that are here, you know, and then for me, it is Neil Tyson. <laughs> it is. I mean, I just think that guy's just the bomb diggity. Like, I'm just like, God, this guy's like so amazing and so smart. Um, Cornel West is another one. And that's someone I've had the pleasure of meeting and being around and interviewing. And I'm just like, this guy's, this guy's God. Like he's, he's, fears nothing and by him fearing nothing that's why he gets all this bs thrust upon him because he fears nothing and i admire that i mean yale told him to clear out his desk mm-hmm. that's crazy you know yale's yeah. not trying to fire black people 
Right. But they will get rid of those that talk too much about stuff they don't want to hear. And I I respect that. I I, I admire that. Um, Steve McQueen, the director of 12 Years a Slave, I think he's fantastic. I think he's a genius. I think he doesn't work enough or he's not trying to work enough or he doesn't care. I don't know what the deal is. He lives in London. He's not playing this American game. I think that's fascinating. Yeah. I wish I could see more from him. Um, I mean, he's you know. made some other great films earlier in his career that are amazing as, as well. And outside of the Black diaspora as, as, as well. He's a fully formed filmmaker of color, which I really, I really like. Guillermo del Toro is, is amazing. Is, is One of my favorite films that I've seen in the past several years is, is Parasite. I just think it's a phenomenal. Parasite's amazing. It's amazing. It's just, it's, it, it's amazing. I, I, I'm, I'm breathless, speechless. I just, I don't know what to say. I mean, the last time I was affected that way about a film, it was Moonlight. Yeah. You know, where I'm just like, oh my God, this is just so dangerous and in and depth as far yeah. as social hierarchy, social order, challenging yeah. people's belief systems and insecurities and stuff like that. So, you know, I, I want to see more of that. One of the, it's interesting too, because one of my favorite tentpole movies was just the first one. It was the first Wonder Woman movie. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was just breathtaking. It was like, like now there's an action film. I just thought that that was, you know, phenomenal because it had a full arc of a character. You know, the first Iron Man, the, the first the Iron first Man was Robert Downey. I thought it was really good. Amazing. You know, there are films that are Hollywood films that I do think are great. I still believe that Ricardo Montalban is the greatest uh, sci-fi villain of all time in Star Trek II, The Red yeah. Dawn. Yeah. I still think it's yeah. such a great performance. So it is It is there. I do I do see those, those things as well. And then there are things, like I still love The Breakfast Club by, you know, John yeah. Hughes. Yeah. You know, there's, and, and so there's, there's some of that. John Hughes and, almost never uh, missed. What's that? I said John Hughes almost never missed. Yeah, it was, it was an incredible run that he had. He just really understood his space. And yeah. um, I just wish there were more filmmakers of color that would understand their space. Right. I think sometimes they try to do too much with their films and say too much. And they just, you got to bring it in. You got to bring it down and pick a lane and go with it and make a great film so you can live another day to make another film. They're trying to encapsulate their entire career in one film. Yeah. And, it, just, it, 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 and a lot of times there's a lot of yes manning going on. Oh yeah. Um, that, that's yeah. what I've noticed is that oh, yeah. it, it reminds me of when I was a teenager and I wanted my first car to be a Cadillac. And my father said to me, but you didn't earn a Cadillac. Mm. And I noticed a lot of, uh, black filmmakers that want the red carpet, want the celebrity, want the prestige and status, but they haven't made a film worthy of that. And yeah. I think we have to get out of our way on that. And Nick and I was, we were presented a screenplay by a really uh, great writer, good writer named Chad McLaren, who wrote a story before Parasite came out. And it was, I, I've mentioned this before, it basically was Parasite. Mm. And 
then Parasite comes out and you're like, oh my God. Now, I think to their credit, that team still made that movie and it's in post right now because mm-hmm. they took a different take. And and sure. that was the difference. I mean, and the only reason I bring that up is that what made Parasite so great is that it could have been a horror film in the way we know horror films, but it took a social angle, which elevated it to movie of the year status. Whereas the screenplay we were given went straight down the horror route mm-hmm. based on trying to meet some budgetary limitation and some idea of indie film. And sometimes you're just too smart for your own good. Cause there was a lot of different ways to play that. And, um, but they're, but they're good filmmakers. And I think that, that when it does come out of post, it's going to be great. I can't wait to see what they do with it, but I know it had to be a gut punch to see basically the movie you've written come out and win movie of the year. Oh, um, yeah. that's, that's gotta, that's gotta be an unreal feeling. Mm-hmm. Frederick, if I gave you one month to teach a new filmmaker how to shoot and produce a documentary, what would be the first three things you teach them? Research. Off the top. Say, I'm not even going to tell you the other two things until you go out and you do research. <laughs> okay. I'm not even gonna tell you. It's, it would be like me being an old Asian man in kung fu, <laughs> you know. And the filmmaker comes to me and asks me questions, and I'm answering with riddles and all this other stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would say, you must go do research for your idea. What is your idea? Well, my idea is I want to tell a story about I don't know butterflies that's the documentary well now go research they're like well that's it aren't you gonna tell me the other two things go research come back (laughs) and once you have researched butterflies you will tell me all about butterflies and then i will tell you the second thing that you need you need to do you know and that second thing would be learn filmmaking what do you mean i can go hire no learn (laughs) filmmaking go make mistakes go out and shoot with your camera i don't care if it's an iphone i don't care what you're doing go make stuff just go shoot shoot anything i don't care i don't i don't care just shoot anything and make mistakes and know what it means to be defeated mm. in order to understand and appreciate the win. Cause without that, you'll never make a good documentary. You'll never be any good at it. Cause you'll never know what to, to shoot. You'll never know what to focus on. You'll never know how to tackle a scene or a setup or whatever. Mm. And you know, what are you going to do? You're going to wait around. You're going to hire someone else to figure that out for you. And sadly, many of them do, Right. you know, and they don't have careers that are very long and very, and very lasting. And then the third thing, it would be, what does this have to do with the rest of the world? Mm. And then they would say, but you mean, I, but I love butterflies. No, not you. (laughs) What do butterflies have to do in relationship to the rest of the world? Take you out of it. If you can't take you out of it, and it's still a significant story, it's the wrong story. 
Because if it's all about you, you ain't making a story. You just talk it. That's a great point for those kids listening uh, at home and for those even experienced filmmakers listening at home. The Frederick list is number one, research. Don't even ask for number two and three until you've done your research. Number two is learn filmmaking. Don't hire somebody. Go out, shoot anything, figure out how to keep things in focus, what you want to shoot and how to do a setup. Maybe some books would be uh, helpful yeah. there versus hiring mm-hmm. someone and mm-hmm. then or, or, or YouTube courses or anything. Mm-hmm. And number three is what does this have to do with the rest of the world? If you cannot basically the, the journalistic code, Never write yourself into a story. That's what right. Frederick is saying. This story needs to be about the right. audience watching and their emotions, not about how you feel. Uh, Frederick? Yes, sir. This has been an amazing use of my time. I I, I knew it would be. I knew it would be. I've enjoyed this conversation immensely. I cannot tell you how much I've enjoyed it. This is great. I um, learned a ton. I did too. Oh, here and we are I, together yeah. learning from one another. Learning together. Exactly. You're a great podcast journalist person <laughs> as well. This has been a, a pleasure. This was seamless and uh, effortless as well, which yeah. I really appreciate. I, I agree with the, all those descriptions. And uh, I have one more thing or two to yeah. learn from you. One of those is where can we all find you? on social media, on the internet, and maybe even see some or all of your work. Great. Um, the best way to find me on the internet is you go to the Google machine and you type in FR, <laughs> the number three D E R one C K and everything will come up. That's the cheat. Now all the social media is always at FR three D E R one C K, whether you're talking about Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all that other stuff. Um, it's always at FR3DER1CK. Um, that's the best way to find uh, everything. Um, my corporate site is tomorrowpictures.com. My creative-based streaming site is tomorrowpictures.tv. I highly recommend you go to tomorrowpictures.tv and watch a lot of the curated content that I have up. I think it's awesome. Um, you can go to Amazon and watch Counter History's Rock Hill that is right now on Amazon. I would say go watch it. I think that you'll really enjoy it. And you can go watch my Emmy Award winning piece, If Cities Could Dance, the Atlanta um, episode on the Roku app uh, within the PBS platform on the Roku app. You go on Roku, you go in the search engine, you type in PBS, and then when you get in the PBS, they have another search engine and you type in if cities could dance. And within that, you start looking through the episodes and you come to the Atlanta episode and you will see my Emmy award-winning piece. Uh, called, uh, yeah, about Jay setting, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. I saw that. It was great. Yeah. Congratulations yes. on, on Thank that. Thank you. I, I want to do more with it and expand it um, as, as as well. So it's one of those things that's on a short list of, you know, you know, creating some time and some capital to be able to go get it done. Yeah, it so was fun. It was fun. It was fun to watch. And, and look, we'll, we'll end on this because I think it's the right thing for a filmmaking podcast, uh, especially an indie film podcast, and for uh, a bunch of us indie filmmakers listening, obviously, 
Can you tell us the driving Miss Daisy story? <laughs> That's a great story. Um, yes. In closing, I will tell you the driving Miss Daisy story. Um, I got a huge heads up on that gig or that job because, uh, as you know, Morgan Freeman was in Driving Miss Daisy, Jessica Tandy, Dan Aykroyd, whatever. They had nobody black on the set. Mm. And Morgan Freeman said, you should have somebody here black, you know, on set. You're making a film about race and you don't have anybody black. And they went, oh, my God, we're already in Atlanta. we got to find someone. Okay, let's call the local film school. Who do they got? Georgia State. I was in school there. I had a professor, Dr. K. Beck. Dr. K. Beck recommended me. She said, I'm going to give you 24 hours to go get this job. I'm not going to tell anybody else about it for 24 hours. Go get the job. And I was like, thanks for the heads up. And went out, got the job. There I was on set now working on a Hollywood um, film as a lowly camera to be assistant. At that time, I was just the camera intern. And I was hoping someday to move my way up to being a camera assistant. <laughs> um, and within the process of the film, that did happen um, through a lot of endurance and, and hard work and focus as well. And it made a huge difference in my life uh, moving forward. It helped to make me the filmmaker that I am because I was around a lot of really talented uh, filmmakers um, who were award-winning and little did I know at the time they were going to go on and win an Academy Award for Best Picture. So I was, there I was hanging out with a bunch of people learning from people that were doing, making uh, a Best Picture. And so there's all of these scenes in Driving Miss Daisy where, um, you know, it's Morgan Freeman and Jessica Tandy and they're talking and then like this kid, this black, skinny black kid pops up with his slate and says, marker, and then clicks the <laughs> sticks and then just dogs back down. That's me. And at the time, it was special, but it didn't really resonate with me as how special it really was until now, um, years later. And for me, one of the most impactful scenes was Jessica Tandy playing someone who was developing dementia. Um, and I was there for that scene. I was slating that scene. It was some of the greatest acting I'd ever seen in my life, and I knew it when I saw it. And to this day, I still think about it, and I get chills. Wow. You know, and that they were conveying this idea of two cultures coming together as she's losing her mind. Yeah. And he's still trying to be there for her. This was a phenomenal amount of acting and opportunity that you just don't see anymore in, in films these days where yeah. people are trying to get to the complex, you know, the fourth dimension, if you will. And that's where I've just remained. You know, I just believe in, you know, getting beyond the race, the color, the cultural identification, you know, who's black, who's white, who's biracial, gay, straight, blah, 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 trans, whatever. Moving into a space of humanity. I just, I just love, you know, films that are about the humanity of our species. And we don't do enough films like that. And then all those other subjects and topics take care of themselves. You know, because even with the violence and the kids in the streets that are doing all of the bad things, there's still humanity inside of those kids. Because you're like, who is that kid? Why is that kid being driven that way? Why is that kid doing what they're doing? You know, yeah. where's that's the story. It's inside. It's not the violent act. It's the humanity. I don't want to, I don't care about the violent act. I care about what is the humanity that drove them 
to the violent act. And we don't tell that story enough. Here, and here. that's what driving mistakes did for me. Yeah, and kudos, by the way, to younger Frederick, who recognized the opportunity, even while not fully recognizing it, recognizing you were in the middle of a crucible moment and working hard. And then when the person above you didn't work out, you got promoted up and they didn't see you as a risk because you had already been there understanding the gravitas of the moment, even if just subconsciously. So uh, what a great way to end uh, this incredible conversation. And uh, I hope that you won't be a stranger. I, I, I'll do my best not to. It has been We're gonna work it out. a crazy year, but we are going to work it out. We're going to yeah. work it out. I'm, I'm going to see you at the Nashville Film Festival. I'll be there. It'll be the be best one. It'll be the best one ever. Yeah, I'll be there. Okay. Working the festival, so I will hunt you down. Yeah, hunt me down. Nick will be there too. I think the Great. whole Bonsai team will be there. It's going to be awesome. super awesome. I cannot wait to see you in a couple of weeks then. All right. Yeah, brother. So I will see you soon. Yes, sir. Be Thank good. Peace. Peace. Be good. Yes, sir. Hey, gang. One more thing before you go. I want to talk to you about Indie Insights. Indie Insights is our bi-weekly newsletter and love note to the film industry, movies, and the creatives that make them, not to mention you, our esteemed listeners. Inside, you'll find curated industry trends, articles, exclusive commentary, and underappreciated films from filmmakers like you worldwide. And the best part is that it's completely free. So join today at www.banzai.film. It just takes a few seconds, and once you sign up, you'll get the very next newsletter. It's that simple. Go to www.banzai.film to get Indie Insights, our bi-weekly newsletter, and join a network of film creatives like yourself. And don't worry, we'll never sell your information or spam you with a bunch of nonsense emails, just the bi-weekly film industry goodness you need. And if you ever tire of Indie Insights, we hope not. But if you do, simply unsubscribe. No gimmicks, no games. So, one more time, go to www.banzai.film to get Indie Insights for free. And thank you for listening. <laughs>